0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Hour. My guest today is Chris Ryan. Chris is the author of The One That Got Away. I read this book back in 1997, 1998 during my first SEAL platoon. And as we talk about on the podcast, I took a couple notes. Uh, About his experience in the first Gulf War. If you're not aware, Chris Ryan was part of an SAS patrol that uh, was contacted by the enemy, and he ran 300 kilometers, patrolled 300 kilometers uh, over a seven-day period to Syria. It's an incredible story of human resiliency, of survival, um, and the power of the human spirit. So um, he is now the author of 70 novels to include a young adult series and just an amazing guy. So without further ado, Chris Ryan. Chris Ryan, I am so excited that you agreed to do this podcast because I've known about you obviously for a long, long time. And, uh, and it's just an honor for me to get to, to sit down with you here for, for a few minutes and, uh, and get to know you a little bit. Oh, no, thank you very much.
1: And that's very kind of saying so.
0: <laughs> oh, man, of course. So I first became aware of you through this book. And you can probably, uh, let's see with the camera there. But uh, that was an old one, as you can yes. tell. I don't know if you, you, you know all your covers very well, but yeah. I got this in probably 1996, I want to say, maybe 96, 97, and read it in my first platoon as a new guy in the SEAL teams. Oh, yes. and, uh, and I took a couple of notes here. Uh, and I can see my, my writing from way back then. Uh, so my notes were these, my notes were, um, night vision, check. Food, check. Iodine tablets, check. Check. Suppressed weapons, check. And, uh, but I think, I can't read my writing right here, but I think it says Gore-Tex bivy and space blanket. Yeah. So those those were my, were my takeaways, um, (laughs) from, from reading this back then. But, um, for those that aren't familiar with you, um, would you mind giving a little uh, little background on uh, your your path into the SAS and up to this point?
1: Yeah, um, well, as a young guy, I, I was um, well, I was born up in Newcastle, which um, is a, predominantly a, a mining town. Um, my parents weren't uh, wealthy, and um, all I wanted to do was to travel, get out, and see the world. And uh, I wasn't uh, really academic at school um, to to begin with, and um, I guess I squandered. Quite a bit of my, my childhood by daydreaming. And um, the only way I thought I could get round to see you know, our, our planet was to join the army. Um, I applied to join the army as a boy soldier, but prior to the uh, entry, I got jaundice and um, I missed that uh, entry. Then I joined the or uh, what are what we would call our territorial army uh, reservists. And um, it was probably a bad mistake because i got settled in that unit and you know we were doing exciting things but it, you know it wasn't in the army and then when i got to about 23 i applied to join 22 sas the regular army uh or regular unit of the sas um, i had to join our parachute regiment and um from there joined uh, 22 sas uh, you know past selection i think it was 84 85 Um, which is a six-month process, and then joined B Squadron. Um, And from there, um, we would have a six-month rotation where we'd go from the anti-terrorist team to standby squadron to training squadron, and then we had team tasks where we would go around the world training foreign troops and Mm -hmm. and various other things, and then personal skills. So I did uh, several rotations of that. Um, I was then... um, selected and sent off to the German Alpine Guide School, where I uh, basically um, became an Alpine guide over a period of two years. Um, and that was to basically run the regiment's uh, mountaineering side of, of that cadre. Now, when I came back from there, I'd been out of the system for some time. For, well, like, you know, as you know, once you leave your unit, you come back after two years, you're a bit rusty. But I came back in onto the SP team, the special projects team, which is our anti-terrorist unit. And uh, during that period, I'd been selected to go to Everest, and um, I'd been told by the regiment in the summer, as it was kicking off in the Middle East, that I wouldn't be involved. I I would be allowed to go off um, in the new year to do this attempt on on the mountain. So basically, I I wasn't really paying much attention with what was going on out there, B Squadron um, had been told that they would remain on the anti-terrorist team and wouldn't get involved uh, with, the, um, with that conflict. Mm. And typical of the regiment, um, in the December, we all got called into the office. Um, I, was, I think I was first on the list. Um, Everest has been cancelled. Um, B Squadron would deploy um, out to the Middle East um, in support of A Squadron and D Squadron. And um, basically, we would um, be ca- battlefield casualty replacements. So the idea was A, A and D squadron would uh, split up and they would be in half squadron formations in Western Iraq and dominate the area. If any of the guys got injured, you know, they would just take them from us and uh, we would we would take their place. Now, behind the scenes, uh, General Schwarzkopf, who I had the utmost respect for, um i think he was a he was a a great commander um, he was arguing with our commander who was general de billier de billier wanted to get the regiment across the border Schwarzkopf basically said um, we'll send the b52s over suppress the iraqis and then flatten them and then roll the armor in well we kept getting start times of when we were going to cross into the border and um it basically came that there'd been a a deal brokered that they would send three patrols deep into, into Iraq in the Ambar region. And uh, they would um, establish observation posts and um, we were to locate uh, SCUD missiles. So rather than take the guys from A and D squadron who had been doing all the build up training, they took us in our entirety. And we basically, we were the poor cousins. We didn't have any of the kit and that list, that you um, just mentioned there. When we were tasked for this, I can remember going to the the Sergeant Major and saying, okay, uh, we we need night vision. And there was, there's none, there's none left for you. Um, We need suppressed weapons. I think the comeback was, my name, my nickname in in the regiment was Geordie. This guy came and said, Geordie, who the hell do you think you are, James Bond? And I'm like, (laughs) no, and that, mind you, that was the thinking at the time. It was suppressed weapons, who uses them type of thing. And then there was the mapping, Um, the mapping we were supplied um, dated back to 1945, which was- I remember reading that. Yep. We we knew, well, Delta, A Squadron of Delta were up the road from us, and they had the facility to get satellite imagery. And uh, the joke was, our our commander said, no, we can't uh, go to the Americans because of OPSEC, I think they didn't have a clue how tight the Americans opsec actually was. We had local guys coming into our ops room sweeping up like oh local my Arabs, you know, you know. Wow. So it was it, it was annoying. Again, I asked about, you know, what the borders were like and various other things and everything else was just coming back negative. So we went in basically half cocked. Um I mean, that's a condensed thing yeah, to yeah. get me into that uh, to that book there.
0: Amazing. And were you though everybody had some sort of cold weather warfare type training uh in, in the regiment? Or was and did you got more specialized training? Or did I everybody had,
1: yeah, what was yeah, everybody's I,
0: level of cold weather yeah. warfare training?
1: Well, um, actually there was um Bob Consiglio, he was the youngest member of the patrol. He'd been an ex-bootneck um marine and they'd worked in the in, in the snow. Um, then the rest of the guys know they were an air troop and mobility troop and their backgrounds. Um, two of the guys had come from the parachute regiment. One had been an infantryman, and another had been an engineer. Then we had a New Zealand guy and uh, an Australian in the, in the patrol. So, in terms of you know working in the cold, I, it was me that had the experience on that. It's amazing. It's amazing
0: also uh, going back and uh, and just skimming through this because I hadn't read it in so many years. But obviously you can tell it's well-worn because, you know, there weren't that many, you know, firsthand accounts between really Vietnam and uh, and when you wrote this this book. Um, so I tried to read everything I, I possibly could uh, just to make myself a better operator, a better leader. Uh, and it's amazing how many parallels there are between this in 1991 and then 2001, 2002 in Afghanistan suppressed weapons being being one of them not Absolutely. For, for more reasons than just uh, making the making it quieter but that muzzle flash um, yeah, because no, totally. night, the enemy just hones in on that and so we learned that we had some similar experiences with, with maps although of course we had some better maps but Google Earth didn't exist yet in 2001 uh, yep. so we still had some of those old mapping issues as well but it's amazing the uh, the similarities between this book and 10 years later uh, after September well, 11th
1: yeah. I think there was a key thing within the regiment the SES and this was in Gulf War Two. Um, it was under McChrystal, and um, he he started Task Force Black, where he had the the SAS and Delta work together and six, um, and bring them together and carry out missions. And then the regiment saw the equipment you guys had, and then started copying it from everything from the uniform down to procedures, uh, you know, weaponry, imagery, everything. And I think it was a good thing for us because. We were, you know, we were hanging on to your shirt tails in terms of how much development you guys were, were bringing on, along to the show without a shadow. And when I now look back, it's say what we were dressed in when we deployed into Iraq to what the guys have got now. It's oh. just light light and day or day and night, sorry,
0: yep. no, totally different. just the way that that warfare pushes that innovation, both uh, tactics and obviously equipment as well uh, over a protracted period of time. and. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. for us, it's interesting how things uh, come—not really full circle, but how there's so many similarities between uh, our military starting our uh, counterterrorist-focused units back in the early '80s, late '70s, and putting all that together based off the SAS and based Mm -hmm. off Charlie Beckwith's experience, which I think was in the his exchange was in the '60s. (laughs) Yes, and then uh, you know, commanding Project Delta in Vietnam, and then uh, starting our uh, our tier one counter-terrorist units later uh, in the late 70s but uh looking at you guys and looking at what you guys were wearing what you got what weapons you guys were using uh what the tactics you guys were using of course princess gate happens there uh you know all those lessons learned and then taking those and applying them to uh well to to what we're focused on uh in, in the united states and then having all this time with just flashpoints with with grenada with panama mogadishu but not sustained combat operations like we had in vietnam so there are these little flashpoints that you could grab a few lessons from uh and there was a obviously a ton in in this um and for you guys when you guys when you went in there i mean i don't think like you were using actual gear from essentially the second world war too, like your overcoats and like that sort of thing um Mm. and uh Gosh! So, what were you wearing? What what weapons well, did
1: you use, and what kind of well, kit did you have well, on as far as yeah. insulation? When we we were tasked to go in there, um, there was no. We had um, the one hundred and ten Land Rovers, what we used to call the Pinkies. They were the long wheel based Land Rover, and they were a good platform, a weapons platform. But they had all gone to A and D Squadron, so we were left with uh, what what we would call a ninety uh, um, Land Rover okay. Defender. And they were, they were next to useless. There was no weapon platforms on them. And we were going in as an eight-man patrol. So we decided not to take the vehicle. Um, we would walk in. Well, we'd fly in, and then we'd walk to our observation point. So our personal kit, uh, our smock, that dated back to 1942. Wow. Uh Useless. Crap. Um, yeah. Each man had um, basically around about 120 pounds to 150 pounds, depending on what The what radio system they had in. Um, We obviously had our belt kit, which was around about £40. I had a a 203. Some of the lads had uh, 16s and um, a couple of them had the minimis. Um, We then had um, a jerry can each uh, of water and um, a, a couple of sandbags with extra rations and the NBC suits because they were still... Rumors that they had these weapons of mass destruction, or they are going to gas us, which it was—it was crazy. But it was more the information that we were going in. We broke every single rule that the the regiment wrote out on SOPs, the standard operating procedures. And we um, there was three patrols. We used two Chinooks to go in, uh, we 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 inserted. Um, we had one failed attempt. We had to come back because it was a deconfliction of bombing. And then we got in, and again, um, when we got off the uh, the bird and it, it lifted off, um, we realized how cold it was. Um, and Iraq actually was having the worst winter in 30 years. Um, the equipment, as you know, you can't carry 170 plus pounds in soldier. So we were basically sherping this kit, as in taking it up, dropping it off, walking back. Getting it, and then sh- ferrying um, different bodies backwards and forwards, and then we got to the um, our selected um, OP point, which um, we'd read off off a map. And uh, what we found, we were expecting sandy conditions, and it was flat rock. So it meant we couldn't go underground. Um, we'd we came across this um, dried wadi bed, and it was the sides went up to the desert floor about maybe. 15, 16 feet. One side had an overhang, another side had a like a flake of rock that came off. In the road that we were supposed to be looking at, um, it was just a series of tracks. So really, we knew a scud wasn't going to come down um, that road. But more, uh, more interestingly, the next morning, or first light, we started looking around. Now, if you can imagine, we, we'd come in from the south into this wadi, we got to the head of the wadi, and then the desert floor went you know, to the north. There was a ridge line running uh, east to west, but on top of the ridge line, um, there was an anti-aircraft position, um, quite clearly. And uh, we we basically tried to establish comms. Now, again, this is in hindsight, um, we couldn't get through, uh, we couldn't establish anything. And we had 17 radios between the eight of us, different types. Um, And uh, one of the signalers, before we deployed, he'd worked out the frequency codes, but he'd worked them out on the Latin long for q 8 Mm-hmm. So we were in northern well, central like mm-hmm. Iraq. So that's like having your house number without the city dialing code <laughs> ring as much as you want, you ain't yeah. getting through, like you know. Oh so um we were asking to be relocated and um nothing came through. And then in the afternoon, um a young goat herder came in and he was probably about two or three hundred feet away from our position. Um he got into a truck and disappeared. So that night we sent out wreckies. And um, all we found was uh, anti-aircraft positions everywhere. We were stuck right in the middle. We didn't know what it was, whether it was troops in reserve, or a, a military facility. But we were smack bang in in these um, between these anti-aircraft positions. Now we also knew that the Iraqi officers were reasonable tacticians because we'd had them at sandhurst teaching them how all the tactics yep. about two years ago and i'm <laughs> sure you've come across that where you yep. do the training teams we teach them and then the next minute you're, you're having a scrap with them mm-hmm. so that uh that night uh, we did the recce's came back and it was it was freezing cold i mean the temperatures were below zero um during the day and at night um that next day, I just spent. We spent all the time trying to establish comms, and then the um, go-turder came back at about the same time. But this time, he came right up onto the the overhang, and he was looking down, and he he saw one of the guys and uh, ran off. So we knew we'd be compromised. So at this point, I basically um, rigged up a system uh, for the Morse code. And uh, within the British Army, I I don't know if it's the same for yourselves, you have a guard net, which is like an open net. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just monitored by a signaler. And I knew Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, we had a base there. They would have a guard net. So I just started tapping away on Morse code. And, you know, like, thank the Lord, um, a guy just came back and he said, yeah, you've got signal strength fives and started tapping back to him. Um, We had a code word, which was turbo. And um, I basically said compromise. He got back to me saying, "You know, message um, clear, uncorrupted." And uh, we thought, right, that's it. There'll be a chopper coming in to pick us up because um, we had a lost comms procedure for 48 hours, and that was still within that window. So we packed all the gear up. We started ditching all the, the rubbish, like the thermal sheeting like extra rations, things like that, to, to get, lighten this load down. And um, we wrapped our heads up with uh, Shemags, uh, the scarf the scarves for the listeners. And um, I led the patrol out of the Wadi. And um, we, we were keeping close into one side of the Wadi, bank side into the uh, left-hand side, and trying to keep her out of sight of the anti-aircraft positions um, behind us. And um, as we were just about to move, we heard the dreaded sound of a tracked um, vehicle. So we we cocked our 66s. We, you know, we were sitting waiting. And um, I can remember again, well, in fact, if I, can I just go back to say one thing? When we got onto them Chinooks to deploy, I, I, yeah, I wasn't jittery or anything, but I looked at my Sergeant Major and I said, this is a one-way mission. If it goes wrong... Gonna go really badly wrong. And that's it. I said, I'm still getting on that helicopter, but this is not right. Anyway. And did you have like a
0: premonition, or would you look at the gear and look at the uh, weather I, and say and just, look at the training and all everything kind of comes So was it everything? T- everything. So everything was and? wrong. Yeah. Oh, everything
1: wow. was wrong. There was no RV point emergency. There was no, you know, nothing. Everything we were breaking every SOP in our book. And but having said that, and you know the feeling, it's like, I want to get into this scrap, yeah. so I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> yeah. I'm going. Yeah. It's probably the okay. naivety of youth. So back to the, the tracked vehicle, and um, what it was, it was um, like a bulldozer, uh, what we would call a bulldozer with a big um, blade yep. on the front. True. He had it halfway up, and he was in like a military jacket, and he was just peering over the top. Then he saw us, and he just started reversing back. Now... Although you're in the desert and you're in a wadi and there's no street signs, these guys, you know, they know the place, like the back of their hand and everything else. He disappeared. So we then said, right, let's start making to the um, the pickup point and we should get there at uh, twenty hundred. So as I was leading the patrol out, uh, we were stuck on that left hand side and... Um, The the wadi was quite tight, but then it opened up, and um, it opened up to probably be a flat plain of about maybe a good 750 feet to 800 feet. On the left side, um, the bank side was very steep, but it was a lower elevation to the right-hand side, which had a gradual slope, but it it was a, a higher elevation. So as we got out there, there was two Iraqis and um, they had military uh, uniforms on and um, they had AK-47s over there, over the shoulder. So I told the guys, I said, just keep moving. And, um, you know, we've got company now. And they started to parallel us um, as we were walking out. And then I, I made that dreaded mistake um, of, um, I thought, right, okay, they can't see our faces. I'm going to bluff something here. So I lifted my left hand, which is an insult unbeknownst to me mm-hmm. at the time, and, and waved to them. As soon as I did that, it kicked off. Um, they started, um, they opened up on us. Uh, Round started firing. We returned fire. We dropped them two. Um, but at the same time, the vehicles uh, turned up and guys started debussing uh, de- from the vehicles. And then we came under a good, um, a, a good uh, rain of uh, fire. Um, it, we were we were doing our drills, pepper, pop, pepper potting back, and it got to the point where we realised we couldn't carry our rucksacks. So it was a patrol commander said ditch the rucksacks, and uh, we did. And we were moving backwards, and then um, returning fire, keep moving backwards. And I can remember. Dropping uh, my rucksack and, and and thinking what is in there, and there was a, a, a like a personal memento, so I went running back for that because I thought I'm not leaving this this around for these uh, guys, and uh, got back to the gar- got back to the group, and um, as we were like going up up the hill, you know what it's like when you're under fire, your your brain's thinking different things, and everything is either in slow motion or you know it, it time condenses, and I could see these like mounds of earth lifting up and it it was a bit what went through my head was they're they're using mortars but somebody isn't taking the pin out and they're not detonating and it's not going to be long before it happens well it wasn't mortars what had happened is the anti-aircraft guns had opened up on us they had level they'd come down at a level and they were like I mean they were they were flying we were in contact for um, it was a minimum of forty-five minutes. Um, I was a patrol medic, and there was another guy who was a patrol medic um, or a trained medic. And um, I would obviously lost the med pack in the rucksack. And as as I well as I was nearing the, the summit, I, I was that knackered, like tired. I couldn't I couldn't breathe, you know, from from the like sprinting backwards and forwards. And I was just looking down at my chest, waiting for you know to explode. And I think it's not giving up but you just think it's got to happen sometime like you know it, something's going to happen and as I crossed the um the, the the brow of the hill I was just totally amazed that all the guys were there and nobody being hit I mean some of the guys had holes in their smocks in mm-hmm. their trousers and uh we got we got we shook out we had our American tackies and English tackies. Tackies we been screaming into there but We didn't get any, um, any comeback on them. And then the, um, the Iraqis started moving towards our position in their vehicles, but the guys on foot were staying behind the vehicles and they were slowing down. So we decided that we would put a dog's leg in as in head South to make it look like we're heading to Saudi Arabia. Then we would head uh, West and then turn North and head to head up to Syria. Mm -hmm. Um, it was the shortest option, and as they say, crow flies, it was going to be about 75 miles. Well, as, as things were, it didn't work out that way. But um, um, we started uh, walking at a, a reasonable pace, and then um, darkness came in, and that's where we broke contact with the Iraqis. Um, we did the dogleg where we turned to the west, Uh fired across um, about 10 kilometres towards the west and then started heading north. And just before we started heading north, we knew we would actually come to the the base of that ridgeline that had the anti-aircraft positions on there at some point. So I said to the patrol commander, listen, I'm going to walk on my night sight. Now, my night sight was a, a kite sight that fits on a, on a rifle. Uh-huh. Um it wasn't like a head night sight. Right, right. Not like today. But I mean, having said that, that kite sight was the future. You yeah. know? <laughs> from from there. So, and again, the night vision, you, you lose that. So I just stuck it on my eye and I kept just walking. And I, I'd said, I'm going to walk as fast as I can. Just tell the guys, head down and arse up, and, and walk. Well, um, I think it was probably an hour and a half of like good, strong tabbing. And um, I got to the base of um the ridge line and i turned around and i had um one guy who'd actually collapsed uh, behind me and another guy and um the other five guys were missing and i couldn't understand
0: cold or exhaustion what what was the first thing that went through your your
1: well it was i was like where the hell are they now and um so basically um I, you know, I was thinking, what the hell? One of the guys who had collapsed, what had happened is he had uh, gone down uh, during the firefight because he'd had all his thermal underwear on. And during that firefight, he'd actually sweated himself dry wow. and he was running on empty. And he'd collapsed um, just before we put that dog's leg in. And I'd said to him, you just stick on my butt and uh, and keep there, keep looking at it and just keep moving. Because, um, again, I was thinking, this guy's got... Um, you know, hi- hypothermia, but he can't because it's too cold. It's It's got to be hypothermia. Um, and it made no sense because he was drinking loads of water, mm. but he was out of the game. Well, there was him and a lad called Vince Phillips and um, myself. So I immediately ran up to the top of the brow of this, um, this ridgeline and it was, ex- it was five minutes to zero dark. And um, I uh, got my attack be out, which was an American one. And I knew the path patrol commander had attacked the same frequency B, and exactly at 12 o'clock midnight i i called and there was no response so i waited till 12 30 opened up no response and i, th- I just made the decision now uh, right there's it's a the three of us and uh, we've got uh, two weapons so we carry on so that night we um we covered, it was around about 70 kilometers, around about 50 miles. Mm. Um, I mean, our weight was still around about 45 pound, you know, plus the, the weapons. And the ground was very, um, um, like it was just l- small rocks, but it was hard walking. Uh-huh. And uh, we all blistered our feet, uh, which was going to prove a big problem for me later on. Yeah. Um, so it was about 5 a.m., 5, 6 a.m., um, The sky, it was um, was still pitch black, but you could see there was a lot of uh, cloud in there. And um, I was starting to get worried because it was gain. It was really flat and uh, there was no cover. And um, I came across a a tank berm. And for the audience that aren't military, a tank berm is a construction of of basically earth um, mounded up on three sides. A tank can come in there and it has cover, but it can fire out at that side. So there'd obviously been a tank in there because where its left track had been, it had subsided. So I got the the guys in and we lay head to toe in there. And then just as first light was coming up, started to look around and um, I could see a small box-bodied vehicle with a large mast. Now I didn't know if it was a building or a a vehicle and I could see the Iraqi soldiers moving around it. And uh, my main concern was, and again, as you know, the 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 people from that region are very private and go into the the bathroom you know um they will walk a good distance just have some privacy just to to do something so i said the guys you know we're gonna have to stag on here and watch because this is the only cover all around there but as it was within half an hour um started snowing oh wow
0: yeah. yeah. And people don't necessarily the, yeah. think of a rack as cold and
1: snowy, no. obviously.
0: But yeah. man, it gets cold out there. I was there it a does. couple winters and it's it can get it's, so it's cold. A, yeah. It, oh, it gets what, really nice. Do you remember if your base layer was wool or if it was
1: a synthetic or yeah. and then you had
0: cotton over the top of it uniform? Or it, no, it, um did you have? we
1: had um we had probably t-shirts on. We had our like old um uh, desert cam shirts. Um, I had a, a Hallie Hansen like uh, thermal fleece uh, like jumper type of thing, and then the thin smock on that on my trousers. It was them them useless British cam desert cams. And I'll tell you um, another thing on that. I was pissed off because them pants didn't last five minutes. The material was really cheap, and they used to rip. Now we were sharing our base with guys from SEAL Team Six. And we went round just prior to going, and them guys were giving us um, their clothes. And you had that really tough material—the first um, the ripstop, I think. Yes. Well, it was the it was heavier duty than the ripstop, mm. and it, they lasted. And it was good cam. And I had a set of them trousers on, and my RSM said, "You're a British soldier. Get them off." Oh. I'm thinking, you know, who gives a shit? Like, you know. <laughs> um, and it was crazy. So that that was going on in the background. So anyway, we're lying there. So it's a combination of a
0: synthetic plus some cotton yes. pants, yeah. tops, all that sort of was a combination yeah. of stuff that
1: probably wasn't the most well suited for that environment. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, we'd lost all our Gore-Tex in our rucksacks and yeah. um and everything else. So And do you remember it, what, uh, uh, how, what your
0: loadout was as far as mags for your uh,
1: Um I I had um I had 10 um 30s. Uh, uh, I had um phosphorus, L2s, smoke. Um, obviously tacked a small pair of binoculars uh escape escape um tin um with bits and bobs in there um i'd made the mistake i this this is a it was a grave mistake i opted to take more mags in a pouch where i had my small um bivy bag my gorex yeah. bivy bag
0: that must be the note that i have in here then it's been, yeah. it's been yeah. since 1997 since
1: <laughs> i wrote that so <laughs> yeah. you know well, I was looking at them mags thinking they're not going to keep you alive. Now, because of my experience, when it started snowing, there was a high wind chill factor. The wind was blowing. But more, more importantly, the snow kept changing into rain. And the ditch that we were in kept filling up with water. And it, it probably saved us in terms of these Iraqi soldiers who were close by didn't you know walk uh-huh. over to us. But Vince started showing all the classic signs of um, hypothermia. And, um, he was, he was going down rapidly. Um, I can honestly say it was the longest day in my life and I've worked in some of the coldest environments in the world. And, and I, I, I will say this, um, I wouldn't let anybody move. Um, our SOPs is during the day you don't move. So I said, nobody's moving and I made them stay still. Now I know I've got to live with a, a man's life here. Um, it, um, it's it, it, 1800, um, it was dark. And I said, right, let's move. Well, when we came to move, um, it was nearly impossible. We'd lost the use of our fingers, our, t- our toes. Um, it felt like you were just crippled with arthritis in your knees, your thighs, your, your lower back. And um, trying to stand up was an effort. And again, um, we tried to move around in the confines of the tank berm to get some movement. But all we were doing um, was actually um, making ourselves um, colder because your body in that state, it basically starts pooling all of the warm blood in your core. And that's why you lose the the, use of your fingers, your arms, your legs, because the blood is being sucked up into your core to keep your vital organs going. But by moving quickly and trying to, you know, warm up, um, all of that warm blood starts going to your cold fingers, hands, and then that's making making you even more cold. So it wasn't working. So again, started moving off. My main concern now was um, if we bump into the Iraqis, um, I will not be able to operate my weapon. I can't feel my hands. Um, by this time, the snow and rain had stopped, but there was cloud, uh, high winds, and the moon would come out now and then, and all of a sudden, everything would light, light up. It would darken down. And um, uh, at this point, Vince started um, like screaming, uh, making a lot of noise. Um, He was showing all the classic signs of of hypothermia. So I would walk back, um, talk to him. And this is, I mean, without going into detail for the respect of his family, but I would try and G him on in terms of reminding him of his family. Um, I would shout at him, I would do lots of different things to see if I could get like some type of reaction. So at this point, um, I said to Stan, who was with me, um, you, you and him stay about, um, probably about 50 to hundred feet away from me. Just keep me in sight, don't lose sight of me, but let me get up ahead and I can walk and if he's making noise, hopefully I'll see the enemy beforehand and then I'll move back and then we'll box round them. So we did that and um, I'm not really sure how long we'd been walking. Um, and um, uh, Stan said, um, I've lost contact with Vince. So got back to him and um, the ground there was um, where the snow had been drifting. Uh, then I would follow my footprints and then I'd get to an area where the snow had blown off and it was flatbed Rock. Now, if you imagine your route, say, going from north to south, uh, I would get, you know, enter from the north and head across to the south and my footprints weren't there and they were actually over on the east side. So I'd start following there and the the next thing would happen. And then it, it actually, I it just had a light bulb moment that, you know, I was walking in a zigzag myself and I was navigating and then I realised, how bad the hypothermia had got a hold of me. Now we, I think it probably 30 minutes, 40 minutes backtracking, and that was back to the enemy, back to the storm. And it was me, it was I made the decision um, that I wasn't gonna go back any further and uh, we were to carry on on the route. Now I know in my heart of hearts, what would have happened with Vince is he would have found a hollow in the ground. He would have sat down and he would have had that flush of um, heat. And um, it's a horrible thing with hypothermia. You um, you start to heat up just before you're gonna die. And what you do is you start stripping your clothes off. And basically, it, um, you strip your clothes off because you think you're hot. And then within about a minute or so, you're dead. And that's what happened. Now, Vince's body was recovered by the Iraqis and they were very respectful with him. Uh, They returned his body and that was put through an autopsy and uh, everything else. And at the coroner's report, he he predicted Vince died the day before or the day after. He died that night. Um, So we carried on. And um, we seemed to come off the high ground into a series of, um, uh, into small waddies. And these waddies were only about three or, or four foot deep. So just you know, just before first light, we um, we lay there cuddling one another in um, and um, first light came up, the sun came up, but it was still like, you know, blue skies, but not enough to think I'm comfortable here, but enough to get your fingers moving. Um, we immediately cleaned the weapons off because they were sodden in mud, you know, rammed. So we cleaned the weapons off and um, we started looking at the map And because our maps were really aviator maps, there'd been two, um, uh, on the the map, there'd been two pylons, uh, two rows of pylons. And I can remember going under one pylon, but on the map, um, the one pylon was like, say, about 40 kilometers closer to the border. And I predicted that's where we were. And uh, so that wasn't bad, you know, it was just probably another two days. Um, that's that's all right, because we've got no food and uh, no water. So we lay there and uh, sure enough, and again, I'm sure you know, you're sat in the middle of nowhere and then the, the goat herder comes out <laughs> of nowhere. In Afghanistan he, still, we learned he, it again. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. And you know that you, you've got hundreds of waddies around you and um, the frigging goats just come. And they stopped off at the wadi we were in, and as we were laid there, they they started to walk up towards us, and we just kept down. They walked past just grazing, and the 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 goat herd. He was a big unit, big lad, uh, probably about <coughs> twenty odd, twenty five. And um, I started looking, and I went right. If he comes up here, I'm going to drop him. And um, Stan, being a gentleman, I would say. He said, no, 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 he can't do that. I went, yeah, I am. If he's up, coming up, if we tie him up, he'll die anyway. If we, if we do him, we've done him. And that's it. If we let him go, he's going to tell the Iraqi forces and they're going to be onto us. So sure enough, um, he stood up and started walking towards us. And when he stood up, I realized he was a big guy. I'm only 5'10", but uh, Stan's about 6'4". So I said, you grab him. I'll stick him and uh, we'll drop him, bring him down. And uh, Stan, uh, he said, uh, No, no, he said, That's against the, the uh, rules of uh, engagement and all the rest of them. I'm Like, screw the rules of engagement, <laughs> you know. Um, so, as it was, he jumped up, grabbed him, but protected him and sat him down. And it was the right thing to do, to, to be honest, really. So, we're talking and again, talking to the locals. You, if you say tractor, vehicle or whatever they'll go Iowa 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 and they have no sense of distance or how long it'll take you and he kept pointing and then Stan said uh, I trust this guy and I went you've got to be kidding me I said Damn, we'll keep him here and then we'll leave it uh, at last night he went no I'm gonna I'm gonna go and see if I can get this vehicle and I was like no and he went yeah so he, he took his belt kit off and he, he left his rifle and started walking off, and I'm looking at them, and I thought, "This is wrong." So I called him back, and I said, "Listen, mate, at least take your rifle, but keep that down by your side." And uh, I said, "If you change your mind, slot them and come back." And he went, "No, I trust him. He's given me some berries. Um, I'm off." So I said, "I'm I'm here until six o'clock." So basically, um, six o'clock came, and uh, you know, I'm hanging on till five past. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, you know. And he didn't come, so I moved off. Now, what had happened in reality is he'd walked right up until nearly last light, and he'd get into the top of a, um, a valley, and sure enough, there was a White House with a land cruiser there, and uh, the goat to had pointed, and he'd gone down. And as he got to the land cruiser, 14 Iraqi soldiers came out of the um, hut, and he was bagged. he, he He'd gone. So there was no chance of him coming back. Um I um I uh, started walking and um I'd been walking for about 20 minutes and I looked over my shoulder and the, there's a set of headlights and I thought, Jesus, oh you know, he was right, I was wrong, <laughs> so I ran back. and uh, but the first set of headlights were followed by a second set, and um there were two cars. Um and, and basically um there was they would circled the um, the the body. There was voices, muffled voices, but my um, kitesight kept burning, burning out, mm. and I couldn't make out what they were. Um, they 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 moved away. I grabbed all my gear and started running away in the opposite direction. And then they came back on on the site, and then there was a contact, and basically there was rounds exchanged, but they were all civilians. Mm. I moved off from that point. And carried on to where I went under the these um, these pylons, and then I ended up on some high ground, and there was a village in front of me. Um, I couldn't see the river or the Euphrates, but I could make out a line of, of palm trees. So I got down to the palm trees, and sure enough, the river went out in front. But what what it was, there was a pile, there was piles of brushwood, evenly spaced every couple of hundred meters. So I crept down to get water because it, it get now. It's like two and a half days since I've had water, and as soon as I stepped in, I went straight up to my waist in like a silt. Now, again to the to the listener, it mightn't be a big deal, but it's still minus like um, zero, and it's still freezing. So I, I threw my belt kit out, my rifle out, and then I had to crawl into a depth on this brushwood, which meant I was soaking all down my front to fill my water bottles up then i got back into the wadi system and i got a hollow on a north side of a slope and just took myself in there and i i just froze and it wasn't until um first light came up um it hit me that i was by myself um and i don't give a monkey's how hard you are how tough you are it 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 gets you and some bizarre this is really bizarre and you're going to think i'm a nutcase but um I, I, this thought came out, and it was when I was a kid. My mom used to say, "If things get on top of you, have a good cry." And I'm thinking, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, "That." Ah. And I, I had to look around to make sure exactly. nobody's watching. And I try, I tried to cry, but I couldn't cry. I just, <laughs> and I put a burst into laughing, thinking, "You idiot!" Thinking you know, and I laughed. But you know what? It was that release of tension. Mm. It, it was like a cloud lifting off me. I sat down. I looked at my map. I was still, you know, freezing cold, but I knew. This is it, I'm by myself, nobody's coming to get you. And um, this is where you've got to go. So the hardest thing is lying around for 12 hours not moving in freezing conditions, because again, you will you will nod off into sleep for maybe three or four minutes and then you'll wake up with a judder and you're freezing and shaking violently. So the sleep deprivation had kicked in. my feet were in in, in a bad state. Uh, the toenails had come off. Um, the, the all the blisters had turned into open wounds. Um, started walking now that night. but what happened was, unbeknown to me, the, the group of five, the other guys, they'd um, they'd, getting, uh, they'd been captured and um, they knew that there was eight of us. Mm. They had Vince's body they had stan they had everybody in the patrol so during their interrogation they kept saying you know where where was i and um so they they get they deployed all the civilians from the the villages along the euphrates and 1600 troops um, were were covering but because it was so cold when i started walking i would either smell a fire or cigarette smoke or i would see the fire and then i could stop move back box them now i walked all that that night and i know i would have done 40 kilometers uh, but i only made 10 on the, you know as the mm-hmm. on the map right. that next morning i found myself on a cliff face um which was quite nice in terms of i climbed down it and i got into a hollow cement i was out out of the wind so i was not warm but a lot more comfortable than being in the open. And I was looking over a a village that was on the banks of the um, Euphrates. There was a couple of guys fishing, no sign of any military. So spent the day there, moved off again. And um, what I was doing was trying to gauge the distance between the Euphrates, and where the wadi systems were coming in. Now, the safest option would have been to stay up in the wadis, but that meant I would be cross-graining. So if you put your fingers out, you'd be walking over, your fingers mm-hmm. up and down, and that would sap a lot of energy. Also, that night, I saw um, a, a, a road sign, and it said al Qayam 50 kilometers, and uh, I think it was New Anna, 50 or whatever. So on the map, I could pinpoint exactly where I was. And honestly, I, I, I can remember not, well, nearly collapsing, because I thought I was two days ahead of myself. Wow. And now I'm two days behind. And so how, how far is it then from that sign to the Syrian border, to your destination? Uh, you're talking about uh, 160 uh, kilometers, about 100 miles plus wow. uh, at this point. And um, so you've already gone 75, 100 yeah about 100 miles and um it took the sails out of me I must admit and um so I was trying to gauge the the distance because obviously the closer to the Euphrates that's where you're going to bump into the cities Uh, like you know the population Mm. and so I, I carried on um I got caught out in the open um at first light I ended up in a a culvert on the road. The road was a six-lane highway and it was built up, you know, the sides were built up for the flooding during the wet season. And at first light, I was lying there and just heard the dreaded goat, goat bells. And as I looked through the culvert, um, I saw an old guy coming up with his goats, a donkey and a dog. But at this point, there was traffic running along. Wow. Now, the only way I can describe the six-lane highway is like a, a railway embankment. So I lay there or crawled up and the cars were going up above me. He came through and I'm guessing because they had the he had the animals, the dog just wandered up and they went up into the interior. But I knew he'd be coming back at some point. So I got into a stream bed and it was dried stream bed yeah. and crawled away from the road. But again I was really concerned that if anybody'd seen me they would they would bring in the army. Um so I was lying in this hollow and that day it was just a matter of just lying still and looking and listening and you you know what it's like in the desert you'll hear you know pebbles moving or like brushwood moving and I'm just thinking you know are they are they creeping around me or whatever so did my map study by this time um uh, you know I haven't had food for it's four days um and um and, and very little water now and I knew I had to get more water, so um, but I didn't realize how switched off I'm becoming. And um, started walking that night. I knew I could, like, if I carried on on a certain bearing, I would hit the uh, Euphrates, I could bounce off that and then head to the, the border. And um, as, I, as I was moving, um, it was weird. Um, I knew I was probably about maybe 200 meters from the river. I could see a, a pumping house and there was a, a faint light coming from that. So as I moved forward, there was an old Iraqi guy in a, in a blanket mm-hmm. and he had a, like a, a paraffin burner. So I pulled back and the next thing that happened was it it was like a, a Second World War air air, air raid sh- siren that went off. So I hit the deck. I thought I'd like maybe tripped something or whatever. And as I got down, I got the night side up and sh- I could see these large towers with interlinking what looked like wires around them and then um i could see all the anti-aircraft positions around it and i was sat in the middle of it and i and it it was only because i'd I'd switched off and i was walking and i hadn't been constant not concentrating but you know probably just my mental state so i'm lying there and then it was more sirens came on and basically everything quietened down. Lights went down, um, everything settled. In reality, what was happening is as the coalition aircraft were entering Iraqi airspace, they would alert every important facility to stand to. And I, again, I thought I was in a, like a signals type of facility with these wires. In actual fact, I was in a chemical plant that um, they were trying to produce yellow cake. Uh, now, this is quite important from an American point of view. When I when I finish, if you can remi- remind me of this, I will. So, as um, as it settled, I was again night sight up. I would approach, and you would get the silhouette of the anti aircraft um, guns against the skyline, and then you'd look down, you'd see the sandbags, and I would look over, and there'd be four bodies in sleeping bags with blankets over their heads and everything. Now, if they had had a dog, I would have been compromised. On the other hand the the cold had killed one of my colleagues it was killing me um but it was also saving me because these guys less like the cold even less than <laughs> we do yeah. um so I picked my way through this place and then I came across um, a stream bed and um it was running clear it had the 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 base of it was clear um it just looked like a spring, and that's what I had in my mind. this is spring water. Um so I filled both water bottles from it, didn't didn't uh, drink it um, just because of what was going on around me. Um, went through a vehicle lager point where a holding area, and it was all full of um, military vehicles. Um, and I ended up looking at a building and it had a big mural painted on the on the side of Saddam Hussein um there was movement with vehicles coming and going and then a kid came out of um out of nowhere and i moved around the vehicle around the uh, the building and um he came on top of my position uh, i dropped him and um and then discarded him and then carried on but then i got jammed between um a vehicle vcp a vehicle checkpoint and an anti aircraft position and I knew I couldn't go back into this facility. The only place was to go static. And on this, it was the same highway, but the culvert was the size of a 45 gallon um, drum, but it ran all the way through. So I picked the dirtiest one and I got in there. Now we've all been you know, in the jungle or on ops where you haven't washed for you know, several weeks or a month and you have a certain type of smell, and we all know what roadkill smells like. And I could smell that on me. Um, I had bed sores on, on my legs and back and arms. If I squeezed my fingernails, there was pus like green discharge coming out. My feet, I couldn't take my boots off. Um, they were in a bad way. And when I was sucking, um, in my lips, my, my gums were bleeding all the time. So I thought I'll cheer myself up and have a drink of that fresh water. So as I took a drink of it, it was like putting battery acid in your mouth or lemon juice. Do you know right away? No I, no, I No, I couldn't compute because this water was pure. It looked um, pure. It was running clear. Yeah, no it looked smell. Pure. Nothing, not a thing, just wow. pure mineral water. And I was that confused. I thought it was something that had gone off in my water bottle, like, mm-hmm. you know, the old Stere tabs or something. So I, I, did, I tried to take a bit more and it was burning in my mouth and I discarded it. And I got the other water bottle out thinking, you know, it'd be all right. Yeah. So as I took it, exactly the same. Wow and i how much did you drink how many like uh, two mouthfuls mouthfuls. yeah two gulps and it burnt uh, all the way down yeah and um um i I just couldn't couldn't work out but but again it was another knock to the morale Mm -hmm. and every single day there was something that would put you down
0: that's a big one right there i mean at what point do you realize that it might be a chemical or do you think it's just Tainted
1: water. I, I just tainted water. I just couldn't couldn't compute because no. in my mind I was seeing this clean water and I, it just wouldn't compute. Right. So that that next uh, night, um, the, um, the it, it looked like it was going to rain and the visibility wasn't that great. So I could see the VCP point and I pushed towards the the anti aircraft position and got through. Now I've been walking for about five hundred about five hundred feet. And then all of a sudden, there was just this massive flash. And I thought I'd been caught in an ambush light. So as I hit the the ground, the boom went on afterwards. And it was the Americans bombing this plant. Now, the plant wasn't a signals plant, it was a chemical plant. And this is where they were trying to make yellow cake. And that water had come from their reactors, the shit that I've been trying to to drink. Now, quite ironically, when I got out. So you find all this out I, later. Yes. Well, I found out um from, from the embassy in Damascus, but I ended up having to go straight up to A Squadron Delta because they were flying in to do the bomb um assessment, damage assessment. But at this point it was just a signals camp yeah, to me. Right. I didn't realize and I didn't know why they were bombing it. Um so I carried on. But this t- at this point now I'd say I'm at my, my lowest physically. Um, I I was hallucinating. Um, I was I was seeing vis- visions of things. I was walking, but I knew I was on a on a heading to hit the the border. And at some point during that night, um, it um, I was walking, and the only way I can describe it was like the sense of having electric shock in the back of your head, and somebody has sucker punched me in the back of the head, and it knocked me down onto the onto the desert floor. And it was that severe. I actually turned around to see who had punched me. It it just felt like somebody punched me and there was nobody there. And then I I got myself up and I was walking and then it happened again. But this time I came to on the desert floor and I was talking by this time. I'm talking to myself. And in fact, that's another point. Um, Every decision I made, I used to talk to myself and ask the questions and all of this uh, stuff and i got up and i was thinking you know that's a stupid place to try and sleep and you shouldn't sleep you know you're not going to wake up carried on and um, ended up in a like an area where they'd been burning rubbish but then i could see the the line of the what i ho- hoped was the iraqi syrian border and I, I sat there and all i wanted to do was get over that border and obviously our, ta- our 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 procedures are you sit and watch it you know you spend time just watching it and sure enough After about 40 minutes, a vehicle came from my left and I could see the headlights and it was rolling down the border. And he stopped just off my axis and two, um, obviously Iraqi soldiers got out. And what the Iraqis were doing is putting mobile OPs all the way from um, Jordan right up to Turkey and just moving guys so they had eyes on different parts of the border at any one time and you think that was that well, specifically I, I, for you or was that um, no i think i think that was just a thing they were doing okay. um from that side and i don't even know if it was smugglers or whatever okay. but um anyway um i got to the the border and it was um razor wire and it was them big meter you know like spools okay. and but it was Constantina. there was yeah. three spools on bottom two and one on top mm. and if if you haven't if you haven't uh had any uh, anything to do with razor wire, if you get amongst it, it's going to hang you up and shred you. So I then started moving away to my left because I knew there was an Iraqi town to, to my right on, on the Euphrates. And sure enough, the Arab factor kicked in where whoever had laid this um, barrier, they didn't know what they were doing. And where the spools had come to they'd fixed them, but they'd actually, if you look down, if you imagine looking down on a plan of an H, each each um, uh, end of an H and then the middle bits was strengthened by pickets and they'd strengthened these pickets with barbed wire to to hold up the spools of um, of razor wire. Well, all they'd done is made a bridge for me to like climb over. Wow. So I managed to get my white man over, my belt kit over and then climbed up this and then shimmied over, got to the other side. But at that point... Um, there wasn't like a tank trap or that them large ditches, and I, I was wondering, you know, is this the is this a false border right. or whatever? So I just carried on walking, and I mean, I was I was in I, my head was that screwed. I, um, I I was seeing visions of my daughter. She was talking to me. I was trying to put my hand out to grab a hold of her. She was dressed in what she was dressed in at the Christmas before I left Hereford, um, and then she would disappear. I don't know what I walked past you know, the left or right of me. um, And then I'll come to. And then something happened and I woke up first light and I'd broken my nose. I passed out wow. against this wall. And um, as I came to, obviously my, my face was all bloodied and that um, I could see a, 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 a small building on the horizon and there was smoke coming from there. Um At this point, I was probably 24 hours from dying, if not sooner. Now, one thing, I I believe you can go, a human can go 10 days without food. But once you go, like, say, three days without water, you're, 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 you're finished. And I've spoken to medical experts and they said the electric shocks in my head were, my brain was drying out. Wow. It was, you know, all, all the fluids and it was severe like dehydration. Well, anyway, I got to this house. There was a young lady. Um, she had like an upturned walk, she was making bread on a fire. There was an old man leaving with some goats, and a young guy came out of the building, and uh I just said, um, you know, Syria, Syria, and he didn't really understand, and I said, Iraq, Iraq, and he pointed and he said, Iraq, Iraq, and this is CD, CD here. And I was like, thank God for that, you know. And he could see the state I was in. So he, he ran and got a big silver bowl of water, which I, I drank. And he brought me into his into his room. And there was a, like a paraffin uh, boiler, uh, burner there. And he gave me a, a, a small glass of hot sweet tea. Mm. And I'll tell you what, it just hit me like a chemical. And it was just like bang. And it's the first time I've had a hit, whether it be caffeine or sugar. I was like, boof. And it just hit me, and I was right. Okay, I need to see a policeman. I need to get in, and um, I started end up like doing some drawings on on um, on a piece of paper. Um, I I needed to see my feet to see what state they were in. So I said, "Can I wash?" Like did a drawing of washing my feet, and he was like, "Yes." So I took my boots off, peeled my socks off, and then I could see all the wounds on my feet, and they were in in bad order now. if I I just go back without making it too much of a deal, it got to the point where when I was walking in the latter stages, um, I would sit down and rest. And then when I took the pressure off my feet, it was orgasmic. It was just like, Oh my God. Like, but then when I had to stand back up, it was too painful. So it got to the point on the last 24 hours of being in Iraq, I would rest on my rifle. So I didn't like take the numbness out of my feet anyway. So, he got an upturned dustbin lid and he poured water on my feet, dabbed them, I got my socks back on, boots on, stripped my belt kit down, put it into a bag, stripped my two or three down into a bag and because we didn't I didn't have a pistol, you know mm. I could have took that down my trousers because again I'm in a foreign foreign country now. I haven't gone through passport control and I'm tooled up. and um, so we started walking into town. As we were coming to the outskirts of the town, a guy went past with a lot of hay. He was a camel farmer. He spoke broken English. And he stopped and he started talking. And he said, "Um, you know, where are you going? And I said, listen, I'm a pilot. Uh, I've crashed my aircraft. I need to get to the police. And he went, yeah, okay. So he said, I'll give you a lift in. So the three of us are sitting in the vehicle, got to the first town or the, the first house in the town. And he stopped and this Arab came out in a black dish dash said something and the young kid started to get out of the vehicle and he looked, he had fear in his face and he was frightened. And I looked at him and he, he walked off. So as we're driving into town, this guy started touching my bag and saying, your weapon, your weapon. I'm like, there's no weapon. There's nothing there. And then he started saying, uh, my cousins um, are Iraqis. Well, you know that region, the Ambar region, just uh, because there's a border yeah. there, they don't give a monkeys, whether they're Sir- Syrian or Iraqis. they're all cousins. So he started saying, um, you go back to Iraq. And I went, no, I'm not going back to Iraq. I need to see a policeman. We pulled into a gas station. Um, There was a a young lad filling um, diesel um, into a can. This guy, the driver shouted over to him. He came up. He didn't look at me. He just looked straight down at the bag and then ran off to the back of the garage. And I knew it was going to kick off. So I grabbed my bag and I'm getting out the truck this guy's like got a hold of my arm, so I drag him over the old chair and I slam the old door on his head and he kindly let go of my arm and I grab my bag and I'm starting to run down the street. Wow. But at, at this point, I'm looking over my shoulder and I can see the young kid with about five or six of his mates coming at me. They're making all this noise and then people from on the other side of the road, they're starting to close in on me. And then I'm thinking I'm running like a, you know, a 16 year old and I looked behind and I probably had a a 70 year old guy jogging behind me. (laughs) He was like, you know, running in slow motion. And again, through sheer luck, as I came around this corner, they were, they were onto me. And there was a guy with an AK 47 and I just said, police, police. And he got me into this, into this compound. And he, he kept everybody behind. I was taken into a room and then Basically, I had um like we had a that password turbo and they said, right, you know, who are you? And I said, Listen, I'm a medic. I was on board a helicopter. The helicopter crashed. We were going in after a downed air crewman, and I've just been wandering around for a bit. There was there was a there was a long time waiting around. Um, there was a couple of things happened in the in the room, but it was like boring. I mean So what happened was I was called into another room where they dressed me up as an Arab, put me a dish dash on and stuff like that. Nobody told me what they were doing. Basically, they marched me out to a truck between two guys. I saw all my kit going onto the back of the pickup truck and then they put me in between these, the driver and the passenger, but they taped everything up. And I was asking them, you know, what's happening? Do you have any food or anything? Nothing. We drove uh, for some time. And um, we ended up in a like a large valley, an open valley. And as we were going along the highway, um, we there was a, a, two cars that ended up being two S-class um, Mercedes, the old old type, and some outriders. And there was a group of them behind the um, the rear car, and one of them was mucking around with a pistol. And as we pulled up and stopped, they blindfolded me, dragged me out, and then ran me up, and then kicked me down and then i i know it was the guy with the pistol he came around my side he pushed my head down and he banged the old pistol into my head and you know what we all say you want to be a hero and run or fight and stuff like that i just thought, i looked down and i went i was so annoyed with myself for handing myself over to these guys and i thought this is why they've they've covered me up they're, they've done everything they're going to execute me and bury me here and then the next thing I'm, I'm waiting for the the, the shot. And um, next thing is I'm getting lifted up and bundled into the back of one of these Mercedes. All we're doing is having a joke. Anyway, so we went off and uh, started driving and I said to them, can you take this blindfold off? I can, you know, I can't breathe here because this is the warmest I'd been. So I was aware that there was a guy to my to my left. There was the driver and then the passenger. Everything, again, was taped up in the cars. I could see the lead Mercedes and then the outriders. And then the, the passenger came over. He took my ID discs off me, my knife, my notebook, my watch, other bits and pieces. And then that was another thing. I was thinking, well, if I'm going to safety here, why are they taking this stuff off mm. me? Anyway, again, cut a long story short, we drove forever. And then we ended up on this highway and I could see this massive um, motorway sign and they knew what was on that sign so they allowed me to see it and all it said was Baghdad and then they turned over and went yep we're Iraqis you're going to Baghdad you're a prisoner. I thought it obviously tricked me and then i had been you know I'm going to Baghdad so what I did at that point and then this is probably the only advice I can give any serving soldier if you're in this position is what you do is you start running through what's going to happen to you, and what I, that's what exactly what I did. I thought, all right, we're going to end up uh, in a compound. The door's going to open. You're going to get dragged out. You're going to. They'll start beating you up. They'll start kicking you, punching you, you know, whipping you with the, the rifles. You're going to be dragged into a building or downstairs into a cell. Then you'll get your interrogation. I just kept telling myself, running it through, running it through my mind, so it wasn't going to be a fright. It wasn't going to be that, and it would give me a bit of time to compose myself, so you know, you, you, you know you didn't have this they didn't have the surprise factor. Again, that signpost is on a highway, and it goes back to biblical times. And they were having another joke. But my sense of humor had, had gone. And <laughs> it was just like, you know, so anyway, nightfall came, we pulled up at the edge of a city. As we pulled up, I was aware that there was another car in front. This guy in a suit came, and these three characters started to adjust their dress, switch the radio off, cigarettes out, and all the rest. The passenger got out, this guy got in. He barked orders at these guys who were clearly frightened of him. He All my ID discs um, and stuff like that had been taken off me. He lent over and he said, obviously, this is yours. I went, yes, he, said, uh, it, he, pass, he passed it back to me. So I'm putting it in my pockets. And he said it won't be long now so we ended up in a com- military compound pulled up to the entrance and um, basically um when they when i tried to get out my my knees had swelled up my ankles had swollen up so he barked at these two guys and they like lifted me up and nearly carried me up a set of stairs past a guy in a, a like a military suit with a red cap at the desk into a set of lifts and the lift went up and the lift doors opened and there's a guy in a like a Savile Row suit. Um, and, uh, another guy, uh, his interpreter. Now this, the, the guy in the suit was the head of the secret police. Wow. And, uh, he went, uh, welcome to Damascus. And, um, he said, please come in. So as I'm walking in, they obviously smelt me. <laughs> um, cause he'd offered us a chair. He said, uh, please take a seat. And my, my book didn't touch the chair. It was like lifted off. And I was taken through his offices and, um, I went, it was his bathroom and the interpreter said, this is my, my boss. This is his private bathroom. And the boss is changing um, his razor blade. He's running a bath. And um, they said, please just sort yourself now. So I stripped off, I had a bath, then a second bath, which was a painful experience. Trust me. Um, I shaved and that's when I weighed myself and I'd lost 38 pounds in body weight during the seven days. Then the next thing was a set of white, um, old fashioned white underpants comes through the door with a vest. <laughs> so I'm putting this on. Then this young kid comes in. He starts taking my measurements. <laughs> he disappears and the interpreter comes in and he said, uh, can you tell me who you are? And I said, well, listen, I was a medic. Uh, we were going in for a down pilot. helicopter crashed i said i'm i've got no experience i've been wandering around the desert for three days and i ended up in syria somehow i said "It probably just good luck um now i'm lying to the secret police these guys probably knew more about me but they didn't they didn't correct me nothing i've got white foss in there i've got the 203 i've got the kite site everything (laughs) they didn't say anything so come back through and I Got back into the living room and um, in something TV's else besides
0: on, a vest and and uh, white underwear. They give you something uh, oh else. No,
1: <laughs> by, oh yes, yes. Sorry. At this point, at this just point, just with visuals the, there. Yeah. sorry. This point, the young kid comes back with a suit and a shirt, <laughs> tie, and and, and uh, shoes. But they'd seen my feet, so they called in a doctor from downstairs. He, by the time he'd finished dressing dressing my feet, the suit came in, shirt, tie, put it on. And uh, another thing that went through my mind, I thought. God, I hope this isn't for a, um, a press conference because right. my cover is going to be blown here. But it was, we I got it back into his living room. TV's on there. It was CNN that had playing. And I'm thinking, as the war started and it hadn't, you know, has Israel been drawn in? It hadn't. And then they said, would you like something to eat? I went, yeah, OK. So they would had a, a feast prepped around the corner. I sat down, I took one piece of meat and it just lodged in the back of my throat. My stomach had wow. totally shrunk, but I was drinking plenty of fluid. But these guys were super polite. When I stopped eating, they did. And they came around and we had one of them uncomfortable silences where he said, um, do you want to see some Syrian nightlife? <laughs> and I went, Well, with my feet, you know, yeah. I can't really walk, yeah, and Dad. this, that, and the other. And he went. Well, what do you want to do? And I said, Well, I should really go around to the British Embassy if that's okay. And he went, If you want to do that, that's fine by me. What he did is he gave me a card and uh, he said, you, If you have any problems in in Syria, you ring this number immediately. So anyway, long story short, gets to the embassy. I basically crop pop up. They didn't believe who I was, so you know I said, Get onto High Wycombe, which is the you know the the British Army's like command post. Tell them, Turbo. One of Turbo is out, um, and I'm here. Duh, 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 duh. Now, throughout my escape and evasion, I thought the other five guys um, would have escaped. Mm. And throughout every every day, when I was lying up, I was thinking, "Them lucky guys will be back at the base, and this, that, and the other." Well, we got down. The embassy was more of a chasse d'affaires, where it wasn't accommodation, and the, these two, or the ambassador and um, the military attaché, were staying in a hotel. Mm. When we got to the hotel, um, I had socks on. The blood was coming out of my socks because I couldn't put the shoes on they'd given me. And uh, the rule in Syria is if you don't have a passport, you don't get a room. Managers like, no ways is you getting a room. So we spent 15 minutes arguing about this number on the card. And then we eventually phoned. The secret police turned up. The, the interpreter came to me and he said, you're going to be asked to sign the register. He said, just sign it in the name you can remember. I <laughs> looked over my shoulder. These guys in leather jackets have got the old manager up against the wall. He comes across, said, please, sir, stay at my hotel. Now, I could have sworn on the Bible that during those seven days and eight nights, the first time my body was between two clean sheets, I would sleep for a week. I got into bed and um, immediately the phone went and they said, um, "What happened to the emu?" Now the emu was our encryption device mm. that went on the radio, and that's the bit you have to destroy mm. before you kill yourself. And um, I said it was destroyed, but what it did, what it did tell me was nobody else had gotten out, and that really freaked me out. Um, I can remember just looking at the ceiling, and. Um, it was just like you know, where are they? Because I knew nobody was following me out, nobody was walking behind me, and um, it was like Jesus, you know, it can't, it can't be seven guys dead. And um, I couldn't the next day, um, I, I, I went back, got a passport, but they wouldn't let me leave the country because I didn't have the incoming stamp in it, so I had to go back to the secret police. Do
0: you have anybody from the, the
1: consulate
0: there with you? Yes,
1: or? yeah, yeah, they, they came with me then. I ended up being flown to Northern Cyprus and then crossed the border into Southern Cyprus and then picked up one of the Herks that was refueling. Gosh, got back to Riyadh. And then from Riyadh, I got back to our um, forward operating base. And as soon as my... But touched the forward operating base that said, You've got to go up and see. Um, it was General Wayne Downing, who mm. was a great guy. Yeah. He was a brilliant guy. He 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 I sat with him, told him the story. Wow. And you know what? First time I've seen an officer show humility. He said, What did the doctor say? And I went, I haven't had time to see the doctors. I came straight to see you. And he went, he felt he said he was really embarrassed and he said, Right. We've got some go-faster surgeons here. I want you to speak to them before you speak to the squadron. If you please, will you please speak to the squadron? I went, absolutely, let's do that now. So spoke with Air squadron, and that they went in to do the damage assessment, and sadly they had a contact, and one of the lads was killed um, on, that, on that site that I was in, um, and then got back and then basically – but I mean, my, that was my conflict over because um, it took six weeks to get, say, the, the physical signs off my body, but um, it, it was slightly longer to put weight back on and, and, and various other things. And, and basically, um, that was that, really. Um, when did you fly back to, uh, to the UK and what- uh, It was uh, two months later. Two months later. Yeah, they wouldn't let me go because what had happened was That's- all of the-, the, the, the because there was the, the patrol was missing and they thought they were all dead- they didn't want me going back there, ah. back to back there. So they kept me out for OPSEC. Now, what had happened to the other guys? Um, a lad, a young lad called Bob Consiglio, he sacrificed his life to save four members of the patrol. It was confirmed by each other pair that he 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 returned fire for 40 minutes with his minimi, and then he was shot in the head um, and then shot in the thigh. Um uh, uh, Stan, who'd left me, he was captured by the Iraqis. He he ended up in prison, and three of the other lads ended up in prison. And one of them had swam over the Euphrates. Well, two of them had swam the Euphrates, but um, a lad called Legs Lane. As soon as he got out the water, he was dead within half an hour of hypothermia. So we lost two guys to cold injuries, uh, one guy to gunshot wounds, and one guy was shot uh, wounded. Um, And then the rest were released uh, via the Red Crescent uh, and then got back to Hereford. And the only good thing I can say that came out of that patrol was I was then sent uh, to a unit called uh, Forward Projection. And I rewrote all our SOPs so it could never happen again um, to a guy. So there was a procedure. So if somebody was on the run, they could track him down. Because, again, this was before personal locators, you know, sat sat phones. Yeah, and all smaller the
0: GPSs. I mean, yeah, back yeah, then yeah. you had I these mean, gigantic ones. I don't even know if you guys yeah, had any r- with you, but they were like the size yeah. of a radio. You know? Yeah. And was, not a regular I mean, radio for people in, listening, a military
1: radio, which hasn't changed radio. in like 100 years. Well, you know. Yeah, that's, that's encased in steel. But, <laughs> yeah, but almost. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it, um, so no, the only decent thing that came out, we rewrote uh, SOPs, um, but as it was, it, you know, it was going to, they weren't going to really matter because as soon as the second Gulf kicked off, technology had had raced past us, and um, and that was it. Um,
0: when did you start feeling and, the effects of that uh, of the of the chemical water you drank? Did you know? Was that well, in your head the rest of the time you were moving throughout uh, well, getting into Syria and traveling back to Saudi Arabia, and then like, are you thinking about well, that? Well, okay, I've got
1: to- I've got an I've got a funny story, and it's really embarrassing on my point. So when I got out and I was in, sitting in the embassy, and I described this plant, um, the, the ambassador, who was the spy, mm. he said, "No, that's a chemical plant, and that's where they're trying to produce yellow cake." So I said, "Well, I drank this stuff," and he went, "You need to be tested really badly." Now, once I was with the uh, the Syrians, and they gave me that suit, um, I'm cutting around, but I started getting like this blue stuff seeping from my skin. Oh. And I'm thinking, shit, what's inside of me? And it was coming out of my hands, my arms, my leg, my back and everything. And, you know, I I could wipe it off and it was coming back. So I'm really panicking at this point. So I, I then get into northern Cyprus, get down, and I ended up staying on a garrison for eight hours waiting for the Herc to take me back into the Middle East. So I spoke to this officer, an RAF officer, and I said, is there any um, doctors on, on site? And he said, yes. I said, can you get them here? So I got this doctor and I said, listen, um, what I'm about to tell you, you can not it's got to stay with you. So I explained everything, what I drank and that, and I said, I've got this blue stuff seeping through my, my body. And I said, it's coming through my pores. And he went, all right, okay, he checked my circulation. He said, you need blood tests and everything else. So an hour before, um, I was due to go on the Herc. Um, they said, Do you want to have a wash, a shower before this flight? So I did. So I, I, I stripped off, uh, washed. Put the suit back on put my hand in my pocket pulled my hand out in my pocket and it was blue it was a cheap suit and all the dye was coming out on my pocket, hands hilarious. and legs and back <laughs> that's <laughs> it was just, well you know what i was so embarrassed i couldn't tell anybody uh, I just that's kept that's great mouth shut. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> so but what what happened was um um about uh about a few weeks later i started getting this red patch on on my forehead sure. And then my skin would go so thin it would start bleeding, and then that patch moved. You know, this is like over a period of several years, it moved to my my cheek, and then my cheek would start bleeding, and then it moved to my chest. Now I had tests where. Uh, they, they put probes in me and everything uh-huh. and the surgeon typical of the army they said um no we never found anything here's some aspirin the sur- yeah, the- yeah yeah but <laughs> the surgeon said um, he said do you uh he said do you have children and I went yeah I've got a daughter he said are you planning on having any more I went yeah definitely he went I wouldn't and I said well what have you found and he went we haven't found anything and I thought yeah right hmm. but yeah I have this thing that comes out they knew I had a damaged liver, da- damaged kidney, a blood disorder. Oh. My gums in my mouth had receded. Um, and then that that thing just moves around me. But it 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 actually comes out bad when I'm stressed. Um, it comes out and it stays for a while. But I think the time, I've had enough time between me now, now and then. I think time's a great healer in terms of, you know, say from whether your mental point of view or physical point of view. And, um, yeah, uh, that that was it, really. And uh, I got back. I must have been all right because I ended up uh, being sent out to Zaire, I think about four months later, to evacuate the embassy. And then I bumped into two of the guys from A Squadron who were in that initial briefing. And, you know, they saw me and they were like, Geordie, how are you doing? And I'm like, have we met? Because that's how much of a head, wow. you know, my head was off. But them guys were were, were really good. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Oh, my gosh. It's incredible.
0: What um, now did you have anything on you that whole time? Uh, any as far as like an E
1: type kit with uh, either gold or silver or cash or yes. we, something like yes, that? Yes, we had we had twenty sovereigns, gold sovereigns. I lost mine. Officially. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's happening a so, lot
1: here with uh, with
0: people's yeah. guns in the new administration, get, getting lost. <laughs> yes.
1: yeah. So uh, <laughs> now we had gold sovereigns. Um, we had a, a silkscape uh mm. that was sewn into the trousers. Um, I'd had a standard uh, survival pack, but it just had the button compass and razor blades, nothing. Because you know how hostile that environment is. In the winter, nothing grows. And it, it would have been too much of a risk to try and rob somebody or could to go to a house. So I just went, you know, stay away from everybody um, and just leave as little sign as possible. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a hard place to survive, I think, because it is so barren yeah. and you're open to the elements. Um, and for people that are listening, you know, so you this is seven days from insertion
0: and you're, you've essentially moved, run, uh, maneuvered, patrolled, Three hundred kilometers to the Syrian yeah. border in yes. some of the most uh, the, the roughest conditions that you can you can be moving about in while being hunted uh, by
1: an enemy who knows that you are yeah. you are you are there. Well, the, the you know what the interesting thing was it wasn't the Iraqis that were the problem. It was um it was weather. the weather. It was nature. And you, as a human being, if you're ill prepared or you don't have the equipment, it's difficult and y- it'll catch you out. And as I said, the the them two lads that died of hypothermia were well-trained SES soldiers, and it, it took them, you know, um, and, and and not in a particular nice way. But the only, the only other thing is I think, you know, British American soldiers, we have a, a resourcefulness about us and we're used to the outdoors. And I sometimes w- worry about our youngsters who are joining the military mm-hmm. because when I was a kid, a punishment for me was to be brought in from outside where I'd be playing in the woods, in the fields, and you you pick up things that you don't realize you're picking up. But now I think youngsters, as a punishment, are kicked out of the house away from the computer to go outside. And it's it's nearly a role reversal. But again, there is the argument that we're using a lot more technical equipment, and these guys are really sharp on that. But there is that balance of of never forgetting the basics, um the basic field craft mm-hmm. things that we're taught, you know when you join the army um, and mm-hmm. things like that. I might get this yeah. a little bit
0: uh, a little bit off, but I think in, in the North Atlantic, World War one, I, I think that was the birthplace of what's called outward bound here in the United States, which I think started over in yes. the u k. And what they were finding was what that, uh, these, these sailors, merchant marines, the people that were you know hit by, by U-boats and that sort of thing, the younger ones were expiring of exposure, not the older ones. And that went against yeah. what people would thought. They Well, we think the older people would be more susceptible to this cold and, and that sort of thing. And what they came up with was, no, because the older people have been tested. They've been tested. They've been mm-hmm. put through the ringer. They're more resilient because they have this life mm-hmm. experience. Um, and so- yeah. That outward bound started to give younger people put them in these tough situations outside, uh, learn some of that that field craft, learn some of that resiliency through overcoming adversity, um, to realize hey, what the human body can take, what the human human spirit uh, can take,
1: um, yeah. and that's uh you know that's exactly feeds back it's, into it's exactly just what simp- you just said. Yeah, it's just simple things that you probably wouldn't even think of. It you know, it's understanding say like the wind. Um, that's going to sap you. It's going to rob you of any 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 heat that you have. So you get yourself out of the wind in a shelter. You a, north, a north-sided slope, you're always going to be in shadow. So if you think of the basic things of why things are seen, shape, shine, shadow, movement, you know, and all of that, it's like you get into that hollow. It's going to be rough because it's going to be cold, but nobody's going to, or you stand less chance of, of being seen. The other thing, movement. You don't move. You lie there. It's going to be rough lying for 12 hours on bedrock, freezing cold, but nobody's going to catch your eye. You know, um, silhouette, you get into that hollow ground. Um, but, no, I think the desert, whether it be in the summer, which you know, again, nobody moves, or the winter, it's really harsh. I mean, I love being in the jungle. And my last two years in the SES was spent as an instructor Um selecting and training guys. And I used to love the jungle because I knew I was guaranteed uh, a good six hours sleep. Um, I knew I could step two meters off like a ridgeline and I'd disappear. I could hide. I felt safe. Uh, But I would see students coming in and some of them would suffer from claustrophobia Mm -hmm. because all they saw was that green curtain in front of them. You know, they think there's something hiding around every corner that's going to bite them or sting them. Um, you're either walking uphill or downhill, but that makes no difference. Or, and you're always going to be wet. If, if you can accept the jungle, I, I think it's a great place to be. Um, and a great, a, a great, it's a great level of the jungle. Um, but again, working with it, it I, and I just love it. Oh, you know? That's amazing. What?
0: And were you aware when you were out there, were you aware that there was some someone in World War II, an SAS uh uh, soldier went through something. Not quite. Yeah, Jack. Sil- yeah. Jack Silto. Or did you know that uh, that back then? I did. Yeah. I did. Did you but think about you that? What,
1: I, No, I didn't. Okay. Honestly, I was think I wasn't thinking. I've got to bust his record, but <laughs> well, not, in that,
0: not in those terms. <laughs> but more so, like, <laughs> but, hey, someone has gone through something like this before.
1: Yeah, no, I. I knew all about them. Um, them guys in um, in the walks. Jack did. I'll tell you what was weird though. Um. When I was trying to, you know, like lying up, um, I would go into these vivid dreams and they'd probably last no more than maybe one or two minutes, but it was, I'm sure it was a fail-safe thing and it was so lifelike. I was surrounded by the squadron and I could hear individuals talking wow. and laughing and, and you could get like this warm feeling. And you know what? It used to kill me when I opened my eyes and there was nobody there. Wow. Because it was that, like life it was like you know there were they I could hear the voices, and uh, you would wake up and you were by yourself, and it was nearly like somebody was trying to punish you or torture you know, torture you um with hope amazing uh,
0: and yeah. so it was gosh, I have so many questions I want to ask you about all this stuff, but uh I know we're yeah, we're we're already over time um so when I was so in Iraq and Afghanistan, um I thought about this book a lot, I thought about your experience a lot um and some of that was because when, like pictures, when I, when I'm first there in Afghanistan or whatever, I have a lot of kit on. And then as you go, I go through <laughs> pictures of my multiple deployments downrange. I get a little bit yeah. thinner each time. And, uh, and yeah. kit wise, like a little bit less, I'm yeah. taking a little bit less, you know, in and out of vehicles, you just learn that, you know, mobility is so, so important. And, uh, hmm. but what I did think a lot about when it came to the E and E side of things and what I was going to carry and what I wasn't going to carry, I thought Chris Ryan ran to Syria. Yeah. I'm like, my getaway sticks, I look at my legs, like, these are my, this is my e kit right here. Yep. My getaway sticks, my my legs. Like, I've always been a pretty good runner. I'm like, Chris Ryan ran to Syria. I'm like, I have my compass. I know which direction Syria is or wherever I'm going to go. Uh, and I'm going to I'm gonna head off and I'm going to do a, it's like an endurance race at this point. And that's my, that's what I'm doing. Because I
1: thought, and I thought of you and this experience. Well, I think after, you know, after coming out and we looked at it kit, there is definitely, um, a, a, a thing of having that grab bag on your main rucksack or your ruck um, so you can grab it it's got your a bivy bag would have saved both of those guys' lives a bit, and you know they'll say you know 48 hours of rations but you can break it down you know just a even if it's just a handful of stuff mm-hmm. that you stick in your mouth just to keep going, but nobody, I should I don't think anybody should be on the run for more than you know forty eight hours these days, you know <laughs> from that side. Never mind um, seven days and eight nights. but it, yeah, I think the like I say, the only positive things was the lessons that we learned from that and um, you know, how it affects the human body and mind, incredible. Um, absolutely incredible. But, uh,
0: every student of uh, of warfare, um, the human condition even should read should read this this book. Um and so had this not happened, had the Gulf War not happened, would you have stayed in the SES? Were you planning to stay in for a long time or what? Yes, what was yeah, that? Yes. No, I, I was a, I
1: was um well I was a in, in my own you know mind I was a, a, a like there I was there full time I was going to stay. Now what happened was there was three incidents that that all kicked off. Now I I'm I can't say I was suffering from like a PTSD or anything like that, you know. I just, I will not hang on onto that. You know, my behavior changed somewhat. But when I went to training wing, um, the first guy I passed into the regiment um, was the first guy to be killed in Bosnia. And it's a lad called Fergus Rennie. Now, during my 10 years up to this point, um, i'd been to 18 funerals of guys and there wasn't that many conflicts going on we had northern ireland and various other things but it was like on average two guys a year would get killed and then you would you know you would miss your mate if he died in fact my first deployment within a month uh, i'm giving my staff sergeant the kiss of life and he died um he he'd, he 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 um he was involved with an accident i'm trying to revive him but he died on me um now, you you mourn them, you, you have the funeral, and then you you move on because I think we had this sense of, we're doing this as a job and that, it can happen to any of us. Mm-hmm. But when I was on training wing, um, young Fergus, as I say, was the first soldier I passed into the SAS. I knew I could look into his soul because I knew him that well. And it was nearly, when I when I got the phone call to say he'd been killed, it was like losing a child, um, or what I would have said was like losing a child and that had a, a negative effect on me. And I started questioning, should I be here? Mm -hmm. Then I was, I was doing, um, uh, free fall. Uh, we were doing some halo and, um, uh, typical with the army rigs in them days, because it was the old three sixties. Um, I deployed and ended up with a bag of washing above Mm -hmm. my head and, um, ended up coming to earth a little bit too fast and um, broke my ankle and uh, my vertebrae. And they said, you'll be flying a desk for, you know, probably at least two years. And I thought, you know, I didn't join the regiment to be, you know, behind a desk. And then at the same time, I was offered a job running Stavros Nyarkos' personal security. Now, at the time, it was before the tech billionaires came about. He was the second richest man in the world. And it this thing with Fergus was playing on my mind, the stuff that had happened in the gulf And I just thought, you know what, I'm 32 years old, take the opportunity, you know, you're young enough to start a new career because you're just gonna go around in circles by staying in the regiment. Um, So I I left and and got into the old private contracting world. And then obviously the book started and I left the contracting and, you know, started making a living through the novels. But um, nothing was ever planned. I mean, it was just just uh, good luck. You know, I, I had some good luck, or somebody was looking. Somebody was looking after me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I mean, you've been. Uh, it's it's amazing
0: what you've done since uh, since leaving the regiment. Um, what you've passed on, the lessons you've passed on, some of the history that you've done, some of the children's books that you've done. You, I, I, you've, it's amazing. And is it is it? Uh, I guess I guess my first question on that side of the house was it therapeutic to write?
1: this novel is that no 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 um I'll tell you what there's two times um sorry there's two things um it, when I started with that um the, the one I got away it just brought a, a load of um bad memories mm-hmm. back and I I found it it was like a negative process um 15 years later I um I did a TV program for I think it was National Geographic History And um, I I live a lot of the time out in the Alps in France. And um, I was debriefed over a period of eight eight days. And during that period, um, because it was so intense, I I was remembering things that I'd forgotten about um, from them. So I would get back and then I'd be lying in my bed, looking at the ceiling, thinking of other things. Then I would go in, I would take notes, get back uh, and tell them. And then, and I was o- exhausted. And to tell you the truth, I was probably suicidal at the end of it. And I vowed that I would never do it again. Um, it, it put me into a really uh, dark, dark place. And um, I just said, no, that's it. I won't do it again. Wow. And, and that, and that's all those years later doing that for National Geographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually um, probably about. I did it about. I think that National Geographic was probably about four or five years ago. Um, but it was. It was really. It was a really intense debriefing. I thought I ain't doing yeah. it. And I'll tell you, it was funny because I was invited by a, a, another SEAL who's my neighbor in Florida. He took me over to the yeah. Me, I was going to ask um, you about the
0: Seal Museum. I saw that on your uh, your Instagram yeah, that you've yeah. been there. So
1: I had a great great day there with Ben. But then he also had a contact at Knight's mm. um, Armaments. Oh, yeah. got, me, got me in there. And uh, one of the security guards in there was a, an ex uh, PD from o- Orlando. And uh, we we're just chatting with the uh, two crea- uh, uh, two guys that work on the weapons. And um, this guy went. um We've met somewhere. And I went, where are you from? He went, Orlando. I went, no, definitely haven't met. I said, were you in the military? He went, no, PD. And uh, we're just chatting away. And he said, have you been on TV? (laughs) And what it was, it was my accent. And this guy reckon, recognized my accent, and then put two and two together. And It was really funny because uh, it's the only time I get ever get I've, I've been recognized in America. Oh, really?
0: Interesting.
1: But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah I just get away with it. So, um, but I'll tell you what. That knight's armaments was someplace. place. Oh, I want to go. I've hell not hell been there game.
0: yet, but I need to. I need to go. Such a rich history, yeah. and oh my gosh, amazing spot. Yeah. I need to get down there.
1: Gosh. Uh, no, it was funny because um, three guys from. From Delta. I know Delta has different names now, like Unit, CAG, and all the rest of it. And it's, it depends on, on your age group. Yeah, no, and it's, it's head, interesting. The, yeah, the head of um, um, uh, Knights was there and he said, Oh, I've got some guests coming in. And the three of them were standing there. I went, They're Delta guys. He went, He went, Nelly White. He went, No, 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 no. no. He said, You can't say that. And I went, I'm telling you now, they're Delta guys, mate. And he said, How do you know? I said, they could be seals, belts, and I said I don't know exactly what they look like. Oh yeah,
0: no exactly. You could tell, you know, sunglasses, what tattoos, shoes, flip-flops, yes. belt. I mean, there's so many little tells uh where you can yeah. figure out what somebody is and wait almost like right down to the to the unit, you know, it's amazing. It's incredible. I love it. I I worked that into my novels. But uh at this point you've done 70
1: novels. Yep, yeah, 30, 30 kids and um it's coming up it'll be coming up to 50, um, 50 novel. Adult it's novels.
0: amazing. So I've been focused on the, you know, the adults. I didn't know you had a, a children's thing until I just quickly, you know, wanted to do a little research before we talk. Cause I feel like I've known you for so long, but I had no idea that you had the children's ones. So I'm going to get those for my kids and, and all that stuff. Cause it it's, seems like what a, what a cool thing to, to be doing. Well,
1: What happened was, and I'm sure when you do, same for yourself, when you do, you know, a presentation, there's going to be guys, like guys come up with their Mm -hmm. kids, young boys. And because of the the type of language and descriptions in the books, they're not suitable for a certain age was, you know, certain for me. And it was two young kids said, why don't you do books for, for boys? And I never thought of that concept. And I had a word with my publisher at the time. And, um, they, they they went, oh, well, you're an SES guy. You don't need to be around kids. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, like, you know, what do you mean by that? And um, so sat there thinking about it. And then there was a big drive for books for boys because predominantly boys read less than girls. It's tough to for, get finding you know,
0: them something that's uh, that's good, that's going to interest them because you're yep. competing now with all these digital distractions. So
1: it's tough. Exactly. So again, I started them um with the idea of like being a young boy uh, audience, but Girls, I think, because girls are quite lucky, they can read action books, flowery books. Mm -hmm. Boys have got to have something that is masculine to a certain degree, whether it's sport, military, you know, hunting. So they went from strength to strength. And um, I get more satisfaction out of going to a school now. And when I meet a a young boy, maybe from 14, 15, 16, and they've never read a book uh, or can't Mm -hmm. read, and, you know, this is in, in our schooling system. It just sends me with dread and saddens me. And I think I owe it to the system to put something back in there to encourage these kids into reading, because we both know you can be as techie as you want. If you can't read when you leave school, mm-hmm. you don't have a cat in hell's chance of surviving. Yeah, And it's just, I think... Whether it be if you're a sportsman or you know a role model, in whatever your background you have, is try and encourage children to you know to read. And and again, I think in some cases publishing can be quite snooty, yeah. and. It, certainly with my publishers there's writers there who will not go to the lower ends of society the schools there because you know they don't want to mix with them or they don't they're a different class system they're the kids that you need, need to be going in and targeting and I'll tell you what they relate to you mm-hmm. and they they ask questions they ask questions that an adult wants to know but won't Interesting. ask yeah and they i've had letters from guys now in their 30s who have said, I can remember when you spoke to me and I'm reading this, you know, this um, section of books that maybe, I don't care if it's not mine. I'm like, that's fine, but you're reading. And, um, you know, and then like both you and I, unbeknown to us, are probably great recruitment tools for the military because you get a young kid at 16 and reads that, he's like, I want a piece of that. And it worked
0: on me. All the books I was reading growing yeah. up, they all had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted in real life one day. you know, There was y- the yes. Tom Clancy yeah. and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and Steve uh, Stephen Hunter and and uh, Mark Olden, all these guys mm. who had typically at that time Vietnam experience. That's what the protagonists had yes. like yeah. in the 80s. Uh, and so yeah. it, it worked on me uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm definitely aware of that uh, as, I, as I'm writing. But doing the children's book or the young adult I guess, uh, type of books, um, or something, it's something that interests me at some point in the future, just because of what you just said about capturing (laughs) those, uh, them early on, passing on some lessons, some little history, that love of reading, uh, all those things that, uh, that are so important for uh, a richer, fuller life um, as you move forward, rather than just this instant gratification of a video game and getting a point and hearing a beep and getting a buzz on your electronic device. So, uh, Mm -hmm. in the future, that's something, uh, as I take a breath here and look at the road ahead, that's something that I'll be looking at very closely.
1: And also, I mean, this is like I say, a selfish reason. Um, it's you, when you ask the question, why does an adult pick up a book? Whether he's at the airport, train station or whatever. And usually there's an association with a name. Now, if you've captured a a young boy at 14 and he's read say a series of your books, when he comes in and sees your name in adult books, that's the book you'll be picking off. And it it extends your life. Like yeah. <laughs> expectancy in terms of writing. right. Well,
0: there's that part too.
1: Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. J- James
0: Patterson has done that quite, uh, you know, quite successfully uh, as well. Yeah, he followed me. Oh, by did he? after. Did he do the ch- the uh, young adult children's after <laughs> you? Interesting. Yeah, 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 I was, yeah. sure. was going to look yeah. at the dates actually when we got <laughs> off this. But I'm glad you. That's interesting. That's one of the ch- questions a children would have, a child would have asked, and I wasn't going to ask. I was going to research it myself. <laughs> interesting. And were you always a 14. reader growing up? Were you? Did you always yes. have this? Uh, well, Uh, Did you always know you would write eventually, or were you just a reader?
1: No, 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 it was uh, just a reader. My father used to read a lot, and he would read all, you know, it was all military, um, whether it be history or, you know, um, uh, uh, fictional novels. And I would ask, you know, can I can I read it? And he'd be like, no, um, it's not for for you. I mean, the one that sticks out is The Devil's Guard. Oh, yeah. And that I was just I have it right over lost. here. It's right, I can see yeah. it right here. All my books <laughs> yes. are on yeah. this side. My old office, yeah.
0: they used to be behind me, but we're in a, a rental now. Yeah. So they're
1: all on this wall mm-hmm. and I can see it right there, Devil's mm-hmm. Guard. Mm-hmm. And I was just lost in that. And I just thought, you know, it, it was probably one of the books that certainly pointed me that I wanted a bit of action, mm. uh, you know, from that side. Yeah. And because um, we weren't a, a wealthy family. And, and back in those days, in the, the 60s, you only had three stations um, on your mm-hmm. TV. It was black and white. Um, and, yeah, my, my old man always had a book in his hand. My mum, again, um, she didn't want myself and my brother uh, reading those type of books, but she wanted us to read. And um, even back then, you know, they knew the importance of reading. And I don't think they were too bothered about, you know, what was going on with history, geography, or whatever, you know, they, they wanted us to work, but reading was the the first thing, you know, to make sure you could Very read. Very similar to how I grew up in that uh, my mom was a
0: librarian, still is, grew up with this love of reading, this love of hmm. books, uh, surrounded by books and it was just a natural thing that we did. It wasn't like, hey, put something else down, put the device down because there weren't devices back then. Um, and now it's time to read. It was just as normal as going outside to play or having dinner or yeah. whatever else it was reading. <laughs> uh, that was just a natural part of growing
1: up. and I think we've lost that with all these uh, these distractions. Um Well, just mentioning your mum there, being a librarian, the librarian used to be the key person in a village or a town. If you had a good librarian in a library, they would promote reading. And I see it by going into schools. When you have a passionate librarian and who really loves reading, she will sort them kids out a book that will suit yep. them. You know, she won't force something onto right. them. And they are just, a, you know, they're... So valuable to have, but I mean back in the u k we were having cutbacks with libraries and because they're they're government funded and they're becoming less and less and it's 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 sad to see see them go um, but yeah oh, it's amazing and then
0: when you did the run that got away, how long was it until you
1: decided okay i'm going to give i 'm going to try my hand at fiction now going forward um well, what happened was um the, the, I only wanted to do one book and hence the Chris Ryan name because um, obviously, you know, m- m- my name's Colin Armstrong type of thing, but um, which is no big deal. It's out there. But um, it was just to get my my story straight because there'd been an adaptation of a movie and it had my name on it. But I had nothing to do with the writing or the production or anything. And it was to balance that to get back at them. And it, it was deemed as a, public, a publishing success. Now, my editor wanted me to do other books on on um, on the SES, and I said, I'm not interested. And then he flagged up and he said, what about, like, faction and, you know, based on events but fictional characters? Um, so that was probably about two years after after that book. And there were all the, – the first five were done in the first person, which was just – basically basically account you know like recounting uh, um, mm-hmm. other missions and um um but it's always a learning process, I think, and you always strive to get better, and the more you do it, the more you understand the process and you know the twists and turns or the angle you can take you know the reader um but um yeah. And then I'm sure you, you feel the same when, when that book comes out. It's, it's nearly like going on a mission because you think I'm, I'm waiting for them trolls to oh. come out just like them Iraqis, today, you know? Yeah, so. Especially
0: today, you know, before, <laughs> you know, if you're in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 60s, you had to find a, an address, you had to write a letter, you had to then write the letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, get it to the right place. Then that had to actually end up on the person's desk, a a pile of other letters. Then they had to actually read yours and think you weren't, okay, you're not a crazy person. And then maybe put it in a newspaper or a Mm -hmm. magazine or something like that. The Mm -hmm. odds of it getting that far are slim today. No barriers. That crazy person, (laughs) it's right out there regardless.
1: It is. And I'll, I'll tell you what, it, it was interesting. I was having this discussion just before. Um, I interviewed um, a, a Royal Marine who is a triple amputee. I saw that. He stepped on, your, on, a, uh, on your Instagram. Yeah, amazing. Instagram, amazing Yeah. So I did that podcast and, and posted that it had done on my Instagram account. And um, I had about three trolls come back with, with you know, deprimental uh, messages. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, what's going through your head? First of all, to say that to a veteran who's lost both his legs and his arm and in the negativity. And like you say, they're hiding behind some computer, probably on a, a made up account um, and waiting for something to say. I just think, you know, you, you must be a twisted individual to 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 spare a couple of hours of your life to send something negative. It's incredible.
0: And it's incredible. I call yeah. it.
1: Uh, I heard someone
0: say it. I've adopted it now. Digital courage. So they're behind instead of yeah. Liquid Courage from drinking, it's now Digital Courage yes. behind your, your keyboard and monitor there. But uh, even some of the Amazon reviews, people take a long time to tell you how much they don't like you or how much uh, <sighs> they you know, despise your work or whatever else. And uh, that's a lot of time that they could be spending maybe following their own passion, their own dream, helping someone out yeah. maybe, or uh, mm-hmm. maybe leaving a, another review for a book that they liked. Or just yes. it's, a, it's amazing how how when we only have one We're only on this ride, this, this life, one ride, that's it. And you get to decide how you're going to allocate your resources, how you're going to spend your time. And you choose to be negative and even hateful with an hour, two hours, three hours, or even if it's just a few seconds, you know, that is time that you are not getting back. And that's how you've chosen to spend it. it. Psychologically, it's just, it's a, it's fascinating to me.
1: Well, I I usually send send a message back saying, "Listen, mate, it's um, mind over matter. I don't mind because you there don't you matter." <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> there you go.
0: That's classic. <laughs> and uh, you yeah, know, before I let you go, I know we're getting long here, but I uh, it's it's so amazing being able to talk to you. Um, Strike Back. How did that occur? Because my first novel is being turned into a series for Amazon right now. Uh, Good. MJ Bassett Good. just did a, uh, just directed one of the episodes who directed, I think 12 yeah. episodes of Strike Back and produced, I think 24 or so. Um, but, uh, uh, but how, how did that all, all come about for, uh, for you? What well, was your journey as far as that goes? And what was your level of involvement?
1: Well, I did, um, my the, a novel under the same name, Strike Back. And, um, that was picked up, and the first uh, episode was shown in the UK. Now HBO got on board with Sky, and then it was a it was a joint venture from US UK. And then I think the second episode was the number one episode in in say the US. So you were you were missing one episode. Now I I worked with the scriptwriters on the first episode. And I've had experience where I did another TV series called Ultimate Force, which should have been called Ultimate Farce, <laughs> because the trouble is you end up getting a scriptwriter who knows more about, say, the SEALs or the SES than you yeah. do, you know, from that side. So then you've got a de- director who knows more about being in the military than you do. <laughs> and then you've got an actor who thinks he knows what a SEAL is. And on the first, my first TV shows, I was getting uptight about it, so I did strike back, signed it over, and I said, I'm not coming on set. It's up to you. You do whatever. Then I was sat in Florida, and I got the news that they were going to run this, and I thought, yeah, right, we'll see. So I watched the second second uh, series um, in, in Florida, and I thought hmm, I don't understand this. There's naked women and a lot of guns. <laughs> and, you know, that's the magic formula. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. And I thought, you know, this is not going to last. And uh, it did. Yeah, it went to nine. Crazy. Like, and I was just thinking, thank yeah. you. Thank you. It's great. Yeah. It's always better, I think, to have a series, uh, an hour-long series that's going to run for like, sorry, uh, um uh, run for like say nine series with loads of episodes then like an hour long movie um yeah because that i mean that's hitting the public or sustain them sustaining them over six months no i think so and it is yeah, good. growing
0: up but it, it was well received in yeah American. no people love it it's great yeah no it's fantastic it's it's fun yeah. that's why because it's fun and then it has those elements that you just mentioned <laughs> yes <laughs> they certainly don't hurt <laughs> uh you know and it, you know so it's different in, in a lot of, of respects which helped it break out um you know and it, and it has a basis in your novels and, and the rest of it so i think it's fantastic and growing up of course when we did you think movie you think book adaptation to movie and then you know, of course, now that we're in this this field, it's like, ah, okay, streaming services and series. And okay, yes. people want to sit down yeah. and want to immerse themselves and binge watch and all that. Mm-hmm. So I think for, especially when you're telling the story or adapting a novel to to a visual medium, that uh, doing the series is a good way to, to go and tell that story. Okay.
1: No, no, for sure. I mean, you think of all the big names, they have had lots of movies out and you know, TV shows. Um, but again, the way of promoting um, uh, novels now has changed from when I started 25 years ago, it used to be, you know, a book, a book signing at a shop, um, which no longer happens. It used to be theater events, which really doesn't happen. And since we've had COVID definitely doesn't happen. So they're relying on Instagram, you know, Facebook and stuff like that. And it, it, it's slightly detached where you're not actually meeting your readership and they, they want to know who you are. They want to shake your hand, you know, they just want that signature on the book Mm -hmm. and stuff. But I think this last year has been very trying. Yeah, it's so an interesting you know, time
0: to adapt. And what I do is I yeah, I didn't think about the business side when I got into this. I just thought, okay, I thought you write a novel, you send it to New York, they publish it, you start your next one. I had no idea that you had to do all those things you would need to do with any business from marketing and advertising, <laughs> social media engagement, budgets. Like I had no yes. clue that that existed. And about <clears throat> two months before my first novel in 2018, I, I kind of came to this realization that oh, there's there's a business side to this. And I can either sit back and do none of it and expect someone else to do it for me, like a publisher who has, like in the military, you have assets and you have to figure out how you're going to allocate those assets based on what's happening in the battlefield right here. Well, same in publishing. They get to decide where those they're going to allocate those assets. Uh, And I need now to Mm -hmm. prove that I was a good investment. So I... You know, embraced yeah. it and just looked at it like I do the battlefield, which is you know, how am I going to adapt? Uh, is there some momentum I can capitalize on uh, the gaps in the enemy's defenses, whatever it might be? Uh, but now it's either on the business side of publishing or on the written pages I'm telling the story. So it's uh, so it's all been fun for me because it's all it's all new and it's the writing what I wanted to do since I was a little kid, other than be a seal, was to write. Yeah. But then the business side of it is actually fascinating as well because I'm learning new things every day on that front. Oh yeah, totally, which
1: is a lot of fun. And you know, I mean, again, when you see that that huge wave of books coming out every year. You know, certainly in September, October, you realize what you're up against. And uh, when the big guns start rolling, you think, geez, you know, how, how can I get this, uh, you know, published? Um, but yeah, it is uh, it is interesting. But, you, you know, we give, I think, a lot of pleasure to people and um, and, and touch a lot of
0: people. Yeah, no, you've been an incredible, um, incredible success, 70 books. Uh, even when I was going to I wanted to ask you about The Fisherman's Daughter. Um, where did that, well, uh, how that, did that come about?
1: Basically my mom, um, she, um, she was fighting cancer. Um, she'd been fighting it for uh, nine years. And then finally they, they said she's got three months uh, to live, uh, maximum, uh, so managed to get her into a hospice where they were doing the pain management. And, um, she, she, she was a warrior t- to the day she died. Um, and I used to sit with her. And uh, she said, "Can you just tell me a story?" And I made this um, story up of of uh, two families in a Scottish uh, town that were fishermen, and um, it was more of a family saga. Like, this is this is key. I'd at the end, I, this was like verbal to my my mum, and um, just before she died, she said, "Will you please, um, you know, publish that book?" Her sister had died of cancer, and her name was. Molly. And, um, I said, yeah, I'll get that done and went to the publishers and they were humming and hawing thinking, can we do this? And I went, please, you know, support me on this. And, um, my editor, when he was looking at the script, he went, this is supposed to be a family saga. And I went, yes. He said, it's more violent than a a Chris Ryan novel. And it's true in terms of you write about what you know. Um, so I tapered it down, but basically the premise of that, that story uh, keeping my mom her her mind from the pain um as she was um you know in the latter stages of life That's amazing incredible
0: wow, those personal stories that have those personal touch points mm-hmm. are just so powerful and the latest book is manhunter is that is that right that's the latest yes. one i mean yes. with 70 yes. it's hard to yeah. keep track it's a it's amazing yes. and <laughs> and i love seeing yours out there especially when i travel through the uk or i i travel okay. to south africa or I, like i see them in those bookstores and and all over Place it's it's incredible. Yeah. I love seeing that out there because I love seeing when guys leave the military, they find that next passion in life, find that next mission in life, and you've done it in uh, in, in a way that is uh, inspiring to me and so many others. But uh, Manhunter is the latest, and that's uh, that's out there now. Yes.
1: It, um, it's, it 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 um, it published on t- the twenty seventh, so in the next few Amazing. days.
0: Okay, yeah. and I love the
1: cover, by the way.
0: Great cover. Oh no, yeah, thank no you. great cover. Thanks. And then, uh, are you on the? I mean, with 70 books, are you doing three a year? Like, what, what does that math even work out no. to? How does that
1: even? Well, it used to, I mean, some of them are nonfiction because mm-hmm. I've, I've done a couple of books of the history of yeah. the SAS um, and like, yeah, you know, fitness book right. and stuff like that. Um, but it's the kids' books. Um, they're, they're about 15,000 words, okay. 30,000 words. Um, so I could, I could do about three or four of those per year. I went through a stage where I was doing two novels per year, but you know what? It was, it was really hard work. Um, and then I think you, you start scrabbling or scrambling for mm-hmm. ideas and one was stronger than one story would be stronger than the other. And I said, listen, can we just dial this back to one story? Yeah, one a year. I, I can't imagine do be... doing two a year. I'm on the one a year right now. No, it, it's,
0: yeah. Even that stuff. Uh, it's about right though. Yeah, it's think, about right. If you stay yeah, on I, pace and, and all that, like it's about right, juggle everything and you need to juggle. I think that's about right. But two a year, I already know yeah, I could not do that. Nope.
1: It, it, it's it's hard, and then you start wondering, you know, how can I kill somebody differently in this next in this next yeah, yeah. level?
0: No, that's the fun part. Uh, so. <laughs> that part I find very therapeutic. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I kept you an hour longer than I said I would. That's so okay. I, I yeah, really no appreciate you taking the time to Not to sit down with me. It uh, it means so much to me that you would do this, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can meet up in in person one of these days soon. De- definitely, I would love that. Definitely. I would love that. And uh and where can people find you online? It's it's XSAS for Ryan on on Instagram. Yes, okay. that's
1: that's the Instagram and um you know they, they can see, you know, the the podcasts and um and everything else. But yeah, it's XEXSAS Chris Ryan. Yep.
0: i love i love your instagram i love uh the history that you post about the sas those sorts of things when they pop up on in different anniversaries here and there uh there it's very very unique some of the photos that you have on there the graphics that you have on there it's a, you do a fantastic job with it so uh yeah thank you for for writing these novels thank you for sharing these lessons um, and uh yeah i am excited to
1: so, so meet up in person one day let's uh, let's make that happen well listen Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, look after yourself, and all the best for your novels as well. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome to the gear highlights section of the Danger Close podcast. So because I just had an incredible conversation with Chris Ryan, author of One That Got Away in 70 other books. Amazing guy. Uh, we were talking about escape and evasion. We were talking about survival. We were talking about resiliency. And uh, I so I grabbed a couple of things, went to my car, grabbed a couple of things from the car, survival kits, a couple of other things I'll talk about here in a second. But uh I also I've been interested in, in survival my entire life. And I picked this book up uh as I came back here into the office to to film this and I opened it. 1980. I got this for Christmas from my aunt. Uh, 1980. It's the Hardy Boys Handbook, Seven Stories of Survival. I still have it all these years later. I read it to my kids probably, gosh, five, six, seven, eight years ago. But uh obviously they don't make this anymore. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, maybe they do, but uh yeah, 1980. So I remember this reading this book. And uh first my mom read it to me because I think I was what 1987. And uh yeah. I still remember it to this day. I still remember some of the lessons in here to this day. Uh, So very cool. Once again, bam. We talked about on that podcast also with uh, Chris Ryan about the importance of reading, particularly for children who have so many digital distractions out there these days. Uh, so getting them into, uh, into reading, uh, introducing them to, uh, to, to, books that they have a connection with, that they're interested in, uh, and getting them on that path to be lifelong readers. Uh, anyway, this was one of those books that, that did it for me and I still have it all these years later. So in that, uh, same vein, I grabbed these two things, just ran out to the car grabbed these and these are uh two survival kits i think this one john barklow so if you're not following john barklow on instagram do so uh during he has so many great lessons from his time uh, in the backcountry in the military teaching uh survival at our cold weather warfare training facility up in uh, kodiak alaska works uh, at sitka now but uh i think he put this together for me a long time ago up in uh in kodiak so i like this one because you also have something to collect water in, something to, to drink out of so it's in this bottle right here. He's got some, some wire in there. Uh, we got some fire starting material in here. What else is in here? And I asked for some sparks start fire. So a lot of this stuff in that kind of an environment is fire starting. So uh, some matches. Uh, this is some material to help start fire here. Uh, wet fire, fire starting material there. And some... Yep. Right here. This is some water purification tablets. I talked about to, uh, to Chris Ryan about that. Um, so yeah, anything you really want to put in here is another, uh, fishing kit, emergency fishing kit, uh, right here. Uh, so yeah, using a bottle like this, using a Nalgene bottle, something like that, uh, that you can fit your survival stuff in and just tuck away in a glove compartment, uh, under a seat, something like that highly recommended. So there's that one. And then I forget if I got this one in Kodiak as well, but see how I have the zippers. Right here, right in the middle. So, Sergeant Major from uh, from Delta Force, who I think will—I uh, think he he re- prefers to go unnamed—but uh, he taught me that years and years ago. Have always having your packs in uh, your zippers in the same place, so you can find them in the dark. So that somebody else knows that your pack is always like that. So right in the middle, uh, and I've done it ever since. So this one has a uh, compass in this outside pocket right here, and if you're running to Syria on E and E, that uh, compass is a good thing to have. Uh, what else, I, I added this. I think this was the issued kit. Uh, I added this uh, lighter to it. Uh, it's got a bag right here. Whistle, uh, fire starting material in here. Yep. Uh, usually it's the waterproof match case, but I have some other things in here besides a uh, waterproof matches. Uh, I got some insect repellent right there. Uh, Gosh, there's a bunch of stuff. Amazing how much is in here. Uh, Compass, flint rod, Ziploc bag, leak-proof bag, uh, water purification tablets, compass, uh, glow stick, uh, some Kevlar, some uh, micro tool, uh, lights, signal mirror, safety pins, reflective tape, timber, water, windproof matches, uh, whistle. So there's a lot you can fit in a pretty small. This one has some light in here, uh, compass in here, Mirror, water purification tablets, and Ziploc bags. Although they're a little stronger than a normal Ziploc here, um, but yeah, you can fit a lot into a very small package. That's the the point. So having this on you as you head into the backcountry or in your car is or in your your spouse's car uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, also, we talked about hypothermia. We talked about going into an environment that they didn't expect to be as cold as it was. So I always have like a sleeping bag, something tucked away in the car. This is a kafaru woobie right here. So this is, uh, is like is insulation. So something that's going to insulate you keep you warm, uh, throw that in your vehicle as well, in case you need to spend the night out there in the cold. Um, so that is that. And then this right here, I love these things. This is a Micro start XP 10. I've had it on my gear guide. I think it's going to be on the Father's Day gear guide. It's been on a few different ones. But this thing right here, you can jumpstart a diesel with this thing. You can jumpstart most everything with this. Uh the key is to plug it back in and charge it once you've used it. But you can do computers, you can run a bunch of stuff off this thing. But uh yeah, you don't need another car to jumpstart your vehicle. You got power right here. It's super easy. You just clip in and go. So Definitely got to have one of these in your car. I got one for each of our vehicles in the family. So, yeah, all about being prepared. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. If you have not read Chris Ryan's The One That Got Away, definitely pick this up. This is a story of survival, of resiliency, and the power of the human spirit. I can't recommend it highly enough. And for the kids, check out that young adult series. Uh, And for you, Check out one of his uh, fictional thrillers that are out there. 70 books in total out there. Amazing. What a guy. Uh, You can find him on Instagram at X-E-X-S-A-S, Chris Ryan. And thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time on Danger Close.